this episode, Justice League America number 43 and Justice League Europe number 19, cover dated October 1990. Hello, and welcome to the 43rd episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. My name is Ear Daniel Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not flying solo. Every single episode, we're going to feature two different guest hosts. We'll chat with my second co-host in a little while, but for now, my first co-host today reached out to me way back in 2016 for advice on how to launch a podcast. We had this really great dialogue. We're going back and forth talking about it. He's a great guy, and he really put together a very intelligent plan for a phenomenal show. Which was then very quickly stolen right out from under him by those pesky Albridge boys. Folks, please help me welcome the founder of the Longbox Crusade, Mr. Pat Sampson. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Pat. Thanks for being here, buddy. How you doing? Hey, Shag. I'm doing great. It's great to be here in this embassy. I didn't know if I... Can I get my taxi paid for or something like that? Do, do you validate? We don't oh. validate here, Pat. It's oh. Don't even bring that kind of crap around here, man. Jeez, I mean, we invited you on as a guest. There's certain expectations. Don't let down the whole crusade, all right? Yeah, well, Jared said it was nice and posh here, and I would get everything I wanted, um, some crystal water that I wanted, things like that. And This may come as a shock to you after podcasting with the man for as many years. Jared yeah. lies. Jared lies. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of your network, uh, I was going back and looking at some of that communication from 2016 when we chatted yeah. all that time ago. So how's the uh, the Impact Crusade podcast going for you? Ooh. ooh <laughs> you got to bring up that. I, man, I tried to delete all that. And, you know, you, you dream big. And sometimes those dreams, they just don't happen or they get rerouted a different way. But someday, Shag, someday I will get back to the Impact Crusade podcast. Um, just need time and some special guests to be with me. So if anybody's listening. I love um, me some Impact. And I can't possibly imagine ever biting off more than I could chew. Yeah. For example, the Ultraverse Podcast Network. Or, in fact, saying that this show would only take me five years. <laughs> which is now going to take eight, by the way. So Ooh, wow. <laughs> I know. It hurts. It hurts it's taking so long. Anyway, folks, uh, Pat and I have known each other for a long time now and could spend all afternoon talking about our history together, but we really probably should get into this comic. So what we're going to do first is take a second to thank our sponsors. This episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, uh, we pick something that's sort of related to the issues of JLI that we're covering from the InStockTrades library. Usually it'll be tied in in that way. So, uh, Pat, what'd you bring for us to talk about today? Well, Shad, I'm glad you asked. I brought Flash Omnibus by Jeff Johns, hardcover, volume one, the new edition. Woohoo! The reason why I brought this one is because I have the actual issue that we're going to be covering, and in there is an ad for the Flash TV series 
which was going to air on CBS this fall, it said. so On Thursday. So I'm looking at the ad, too. On Thursday. On, yeah, what a great ad and what a great time to be into comic superheroes at the time. So I was really looking forward to that Flash season. I think it only came about, about a season or so that it did. But it was a great series. And now you can see Wesley Ship on the the Flash CW show, too, now. So that's cool. Well, I'm glad that that really worked out for him, that he got something out of it. Because that other guy who played the trickster, he didn't go anywhere with his no. Career. No, it just kind of, he just kind of failed. It's like, I don't know what became of that guy. It's almost like he became a hermit and went off somewhere by himself. Yeah, somewhere far, far away. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So you got to mention the tagline on the ad because I'm waiting for this. Come on. Oh, here we go. Yeah. And in the ad, it says, justice has never been faster or more furious. Speeding to CBS Thursday nights this fall fast and furious in the thing here i think uh oh yeah i think I vin diesel it. i think vin diesel owes the cbs flash show some credit here <laughs> that he does that he does i didn't catch that good catch <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell people at home what's in the flash omnibus by jeff johns sure well this title collects uh, flash issues 164 through 191 plus the flash our world at war number one the flash iron heights number one and the flash secret files number three in these tales, Wally West finds himself without his super speed in a darker mirror version of Keystone City. Can a powerless Flash defeat Captain Cold and Mirror Master to save the city he loves? Plus, the Flash is shocked to learn that a strange cult is killing all the people he has ever rescued. Uh, this, yeah, this was published by DC. Uh, writer was Jeff Johns. Artist is various. Cover artist is Scott Collins. Uh, his format is a hardcover, and it's 864 pages. Believe me, this thing is a monster. I own it. And it is heavy. Uh, its price is $99.99, but on in stock trades, you can save 42% and get it for $57.99. So, you know how when you read a comic, every comic can be someone's jumping on point, but also every comic can be someone's jumping off point. Sure. Well, I read all of the Mark Wade Flash comics, loved them. I thought they're amazing. Then this new kid, Jeff Johns, comes on the book that I'd never mm. heard of and decided that was my perfect jumping off place. So, mm-hmm. I left with Jeff Johns' first issue. And then, about, I don't know, two or three years later in his run, I was totally kicking myself and had to go back and buy all the issues because they were absolutely amazing. And folks, if you've never read Jeff John's Flash, especially this early run, it is really, really exceptional. It is. It's a great read. And I was so excited about reading it that I got this one, Omnibus 2 and 3, so... Oh, sweet. Okay, very nice. It's yeah. uh, it's great stuff. It is. Well, I brought also another very large hardcover. Mine's bigger than yours, by the way. Oh, uh, I brought Who's Who Omnibus Volume 1 hardcover. So besides the fact that I absolutely adore Who's Who, and I do a podcast about Who's Who, I very specifically picked it because in this issue of Just League America number 43, there's a ton, a ton of all these background characters that really don't get featured in very many places. But I specifically said, where can I find the bug-eyed band? Bandit and Kite Man in the same comic book. Because let me tell you, folks, something happens in this issue with them that I adore. Who's Who is the mm. only place I could think of. So this collects the original 26-issue series. It includes the uh, 1987 update, the 88 update, and all the stuff from the 89 annuals. It is 1,320 pages. You could kill a man with this book easily, folks. Beautiful cover by George Perez. It normally retails for $150. You can get it for 65% off, so it's only $52.50. And it's freaking Who's Who. It's so awesome. 
awesome. And all of the crazy minor characters we're going to be mentioning today are going to be in this book. So you guys should check it out. I think I need to get this one just to learn about all those crazy characters that are in here that are in this issue. <laughs> They're definitely worth it. I mean, come on, where else are you going to hear about Quake Master? I mean, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. For these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, folks, this episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support because running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services. And a while back, we realized we needed some help with, uh, with the expenses. So we launched the Patreon and you guys really stepped up to the plate and we really appreciate it. So if you're enjoying the JLI podcast, the best way to help support the show is by visiting patreon.com slash fwpodcast and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network. And at certain tiers, you'll get mentioned on the show of your choice, just like these folks who asked to be recognized on the JLI podcast. So our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, DC Dave, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Kevin Wetter, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Michael Crouch, Mike Zumkowski, Patrick McMullen, Roger Preve, Rodi Castillo, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Thanks to all of you folks. And again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Now, as I say every episode, folks, get out on the social media. Use our hashtag, uh, PoundFWPodcast. You can find the show at JLI Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. This is all about building the online community of fans around the show, mainly to support the comics, not the show, but support these comics because they're wonderful, and we want DC to hear how much we love them. So, Pat, I got to ask you, man, what is your origin story with the JLI? How'd you find it? How, what made you fall in love? What, where, where, did this, where did this passion in your heart come from, sir? Well, um, allow me to kind of give you a little bit of a background on this. So, Shag, if you don't mind, if you could just hold this can of wax that I have that I kind of brought for your car here. <laughs> um, I'll kind of get into the background on this. So, Biff, uh, kind of Biff, I said two coats of wax. Oh, oh yes, yes, Mister Shake, yes, Mr. Shake. <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that. No problem, no problem. So, as a back in the '90s, I didn't collect a, a lot of this the series. Uh, I would only collect about Batman. Yes, that was my Batman phase back then. <laughs> Green Lantern. Superman and some other DC titles at the time, uh, but I would grab an issue or an annual of the series if it tied into the major DC crossover events like Funeral for a Friend, Zero Hour, Armageddon 2001, Eclipse of the Darkness Within, and Bloodlines. So yeah, I'm, I'm a sucker for event books. Sure. But back March 20th of 2016, a new podcast started that was going to chronicle the adventures of the JLI era from Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus by covering behind-the-scenes history, recapping the stories, and discussing the issues. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like a chump project to me that would take too long to do. <laughs> it does, <laughs> man. Who would want to do something like that? For eight years! <laughs> <laughs> Talk about time-consuming. Man. But it was, yeah, of course, it's the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. Number one came out, and that's what I heard. And I'm like, wow, this is really cool. I like this uh, what this format. I like hearing about this, and it gives me a chance to kind of learn more about the Justice League. So since then, I tried. Uh, I listened along with you and your guests reviewing and discussing the series. Uh, I began to hear the passion that you and your guests have for this series, and the, that motivated me to find the series to add to my collection. I was kind of lucky at, to be at half price books that was near to me in Appleton, believe it or not, Ooh. when I spotted the cover of issue number one on the shelf. And not only was it number one, but it was a bundle pack of 20 or so issues starting with number one. So wow. I grabbed it off the shelf. Yeah, I know. That's Can awesome. believe it? 
And behind that uh, was another bundle of JLI that had the rest of a few more issues behind that. Um, that took me all the way up to issue number 45. So I got one through 45 all in singles thanks to the half price book. So I don't know who had a collection like that, but they just dumped it. And then along with that too, I found JLE issues as well too, in the bundle packs. So I got issues one through 21 and uh, 23 through 68, but I'm not sure what 22 is for Justice League. In Justice League Europe? Yeah. Oh, we're going to cover it in a couple of months, so I guess you can find out. <laughs> I guess I will. Yeah. I'm wondering what was kind of special, why it was not in the bundle. Hmm. That I don't know off the top of my head, as I Google what the cover is. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, Half Price Books is like a paradise. I love Half Price Books. I do. It's a great place to go. We uh, we don't have one anywhere near me, but oh. every, ta- every time I go visit uh, the folks up in Columbus, uh, Professor Allen and sure. Russell Burbage yep. and stuff, we always go... Oh, issue 22 is buy this comic or we won't shoot this cat. So uh, mm-hmm. it's a great cover. So uh, sorry you missed out on that. We'll we'll tell you all about it in just a few months. Yeah, I can't wait. I'll be listening. <laughs> but what I liked uh, was just kind of hearing the character building that the series did through the storytelling along with the art and the humor. And again, just listening to you has brought me here. So all these four years that I've been waiting, it's finally here. I can't believe it. <laughs> That is the best origin story anyone's ever shared because it's all about me. Exactly. So <laughs> you wanted two layers of wax? Right. Well, I, w- I was going for the Back to the Future, Biff Tannen, you know, yep. co- wax the car twice kind of thing. But yeah, uh, absolutely. All right. I can do that <laughs> <laughs> while I'm here. But in- you sure you don't validate? No. I told you no. See, that's the part where you say, I had your car towed all the way to your house and all you've got for me is light beer. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we are going to get into this. So remember, if you don't have issue 43 of Just League America in front of you for some reason, and if you don't, you're a fool. But anyway, you can go out to our website where you can see a gallery of some of the images for the issue. However, I highly recommend you either pick it up on Comixology or you get the DC Infinite app, read it there, or get the Omnibus. I mean, there's a million ways you can get your hands on this comic nowadays. So it is Justice League America number 43, published by DC Comics, cover dated October 1990. On the shelves, August 14th, 1990, cover price $1, four shiny quarters, and the cover is by Adam Hughes and Carl Story. Pat, would you mind describing the cover? Well, Shake, I'm glad you asked. I can do that. The Justice League America logo is white and red, outlining like a warm summer's evening on the top of the cover. The DC Bullet logo is in the top corner box, and below it is Booster and Beetle standing next to each other in a buddy pose because they were both too tired to sleep. (laughs) In the foreground is a shaky hand holding some playing cards of Martian Manhunter as the king, Blue Beetle as the jack, and Fire as the queen. Remember, the secret to surviving is knowing what to throw away and knowing what to keep. (laughs) Sitting across from the table is Brainstorm holding cards with a look on his face of every hands a winner. Next to him is Quake Master with a look in his eyes of every hands a loser. There's a pile of money sitting on the table, but there'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. <laughs> and somewhere in the darkness, we see Black Mass, Sonar, Crowbar, Black Rock, and a waitress dressed as Wonder Woman. I hope in this cover description, you find an ace that you can keep. <laughs> That was genius, sir. That was pure genius. I absolutely love that. I don't know how long that took you to come up with it, but it was genius. I had the idea, but it took me a while to play it just right. So I'm glad you liked it. Makes me hungry for for some fried chicken, you know? (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) So tell me, it is obviously a gorgeous cover. Adam Hughes and Carl Story together are like magic. What, What jumps out at you? What do you love about the cover? 
You're right. The, just the, the art is great. Uh, the facial expressions are fantastic, especially on Brainstorm. And then just the, even just the eyes of Quakemaster, you can see that squinting in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just great detail. Um, just really fantastic. And you get a sense of the person holding the cards is nervous. I don't oh, know. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not a poker player. So I don't know if that's a good hand. Is it a bad hand? Uh, all, the, all the poker players uh, looking at the cover are ashamed of you right now. Uh, that is one of the absolute highest hands you could ever get in cards. That is oh, a royal okay. flush right there. It's, it's in hearts. So I suppose if someone had another royal flush in another suit that's higher, they might beat him out. But uh, a royal flush with hearts is pretty darn amazing. Oh, I, I figured it probably had to be good. But yeah, I, I'm more of an Uno kind of guy. <laughs> That's fine. Just keep me with colors and the numbers, but <laughs> um, imagine a hand of five draw fours. There you go. That's Ooh, what yeah, that's what this guy's go. got right now. <laughs> that's, that's death waiting for right. the other person. <laughs> exactly. I you mentioned the eyes. I look at Brainstorm's eyes. I just Brainstorm's eyes and mm-hmm. his like the shadow of his smile and he's not smiling, but it's like a shadow of a smile underneath that mustache. It tells you everything. It tells you everything about his cards right there. I mean, I just love it. And Crowbar like looks a, so happy. It's like a smirk. Yeah. Kind of a, yeah. And Crowbar is just, you know, smiling away too. Right. Cause he's not playing cards. He's hanging out in the back with Black Rock. They're just cutting up at a bar like friends. Cause that's what these people are. They're just friends. Mm-hmm. I like the JLA members that are on the cards as well, too. Mm. Well, I, I was going to get into that a little bit because, like, Marsh Manhunter's there. He's the king, which makes mm-hmm. sense as the team leader. And you know how when you when you have a playing card, and if you flip it over, it's the same image, just upside down. Well, in this case, it's Marsh Manhunter on the top, but on the bottom, on the reverse, is actually him in his true Martian form. Kind of the all stretchy, oh, Gumby-looking okay, yeah. kind of thing. In the and, chin. Yep. And then I like behind him is Blue Beetle. Like, Blue Beetle's, like, screaming because he's, like, he's unhappy because he's stuck behind Marsh Manhunter's card, which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> And fire, well, I mean, let's just face it. It's it's Adam Hughes drawing fire. She's hot. So it looks great. (laughs) (laughs) Now, here's something. In in all uh, fairness, I did not notice this. I I saw this on a website and jumped out. So I had to mention it. So I'm not taking claim for noticing this. But look at the Wonder Woman waitress, right? Behind her, to her right, or our right, is a silhouette of a character from the manga Appleseed, which Mm. is so bizarre. I mean, I know Adam Hughes loved other independent comics and loved to throw references when he could. But like, I used to work in a comic shop during this period, so I remember we sold the Appleseed comics and stuff like that. Okay. So it's like, what an interesting, bizarre sort of character to throw in there. So just a way to go, Adam. Yeah, definitely. Then, Do you know who's in between Sonar and uh, Crowbar? The only... <laughs> I don't. I, I, I don't. I looked for that. The only thing I can think of, it looks like some of the creatures from the cantina in uh, A New Hope. Yeah. That's, that's about all I've got. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I like the coloring on this as well, too, because it gives you that mood of, you know, a dark kind of a dingier place. And yeah. as it fades towards the back, it, it all goes black like that. No, you're absolutely right. It's a it's a solidly done cover. It's beautiful. Uh, and it's it's funny. And it really sets the tone for this issue because this issue is not about the Justice League, really. I mean, they're in it, but mm-hmm. they're not, I would say, the dominant characters in the story. Yeah, until you actually read what's inside, you come back and look at this cover, and then you can really see what they were playing off of. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into it. So, folks, the credits in the inside, I'm going to read them exactly as they're written in the comic here. Uh, it says, Kevin Dooley, DC Comics' finest editor, proudly presents plot by Keith Giffen, script by J.M. DiMatteis, penciler Adam Hughes, inker Jose Marzan Jr., uh, letterer Bob LePan. 
colorist Gene D'Angelo, editor Andy Helfer. And it's, uh, then it says the parentheses at the bottom. There, Kevin, isn't that better than a raise? <laughs> <laughs> they were always giving uh, Kevin a hard time. So uh, pretty pretty fun. I like that. I was kind of wondering what, the, uh, what they were doing with Kevin there. Yeah, they're always giving him a hard time in these stories. So the issue itself is called If You Play Your Cards Right. Uh, and why don't you start us off, Pat, with the first half of the summary? All right. The issue opens with Green Lantern's villain called Sonar robbing a bank. Sonar has finally wised up and realized that when he tries to conquer the world, he always is defeated by superheroes. So instead, he's going to think smaller and just rob banks and get rich. Well, who wouldn't want that plan? (laughs) His plan would have worked too, but if it weren't for those meddling justice leaguers. Turns out that Sonar tripped a silent alarm and now he's facing Martian Manhunter, Fire... Orion, and Light Ray. The League's overconfidence and lack of teamwork end up being their downfall. Sonar's sonic gun injures the League members and endangers ton of innocent bystanders with shattering glass from several skyscrapers raining down on the innocents. Fire melts the glass into a giant silent mass while Orion tries to catch the chunk of glass before it crashes the pedestrians. While they save the citizens, fire incinerates the stolen bank money, and the whole affair is a bit of a disaster for the League. Meanwhile, an injured Sonar makes his gateway on foot. Sonar is spotted by an out-of-work reporter named Wally Tortellini. Back in JLA number 38, Wally wrote the rejected expose on the JLI for Spy Magazine. Since then, his career has been on the skids. Wally decides to help Sonar escape in hopes of collecting more info on the League to help sell his story to a publisher. Back at the Justice League Embassy, Blue Beetle is reduced to tears laughing at his teammates' failures against such a minor foe. And the mocking, Orion does not greatly appreciate. Guy Gardner supports Orion threatening Blue Beetle, but even Orion can't stand Guy. And who doesn't? (laughs) Right. I'll take it from here. So Sonar is thankful for Wally Tortellini's help and asks how he can repay him. Well, Wally wants to interview supervillains to get their side of the story, thinking that'll help sell an article. Sonar takes them to the Dark Side Bar, which is a safe haven for the low-level costume villain. Inside the place, it's packed with low-rent supervillains. We're talking bottom of the barrel, the kind of who's-who entries you just skip right over. People like Brainstorm, Calendar Man, Calculator, Quake Master, Bug-Eyed Bandit, Kite Man, Black Mass, Crowbar, Black Rock, and Cavalier. Yeah, we're, we're not talking the Legion of Doom here, folks. Uh, there's even a couple made up just for this issue, like Mr. Micro and some chump called Moish, I guess is how you say it, Moish. Um, I was confused there, too. Yeah, which is even weirder because his chest emblem is not an M. It's, it's the Superman shield with the letter G inside of it. I don't, I don't really get it. And then, beating Kingdom Come by several years, the waitresses in this bar are all dressed like superheroines, like Wonder Woman and Phantom Lady. Now, Wally finds himself in a game of poker against several supervillains, as represented on the cover. The card game gets pretty intense, and the stakes keep getting raised to the point where the villains all bet their super equipment, and Wally bets his notebook full of Justice League secrets. Now, meanwhile, while all this is going on, in the background are Kite Man and Bug-Eyed Bandit rolling around on the floor in a knockdown, drag-out fist fight. Apparently, the argument is whether Kite Man beat up Superman or not. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so Wally Tortellini wins the poker hand, leaving the bar wearing brainwaves, enormous helmet, and carrying a bag full of items, including Black Rock's Power Stone, Black Mass's wristbands, the Cavalier's sword, Quake Master's jackhammer, Sonar's sonic gun, and Crowbar's, well, his crowbar. Now, as Wally stumbles out of the bar, laden with his new tools, he is being covertly watched by men in suits who are hiding in the shadows, ready to pick up Tortellini. Next issue, Tortellini Unleashed. <laughs> I love I love his name, Tortellini. Cracks me up. So what do you <laughs> think of the issue? It makes me hungry. I know, right? I want some pasta. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what do you think of the issue, buddy? All right. Well, just the, the beginning with Sonar, you know, he, he knows his role and is fine with just kind of being a bank robber, you know, so he doesn't get attention of the other superheroes. And, you know, big schemes mean big trouble and big right. attention. So I just like how he's, you know, so high on himself thinking, oh, yeah, I got this. I'm just keep myself low and I'll be all right and not get any uh, attention to me. And all of a sudden, boom, there's the Justice League shows up. And he's like, oh, man. Well, I love that he's just accepted that he's not going to be a world conqueror. It like it reminds me of that old Mad TV sket, uh, Lowered Expectations. It's like he gets it. It's like, OK, you mm-hmm. know what? I need to just set my sights a little lower. And that's OK. And it's, yeah. it's very it's very realistic, too. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I was like, OK, well, you know, I'm not going to be a big power podcasting guy or anything like that i'm just gonna be myself and oh i can't even do that (laughs) (laughs) uh let's and then that goes into the fight and yet he kills still kind of keeps complaining about about how lousy uh, the little little bank job brings in the jla to come after him and he's just you guys probably even laugh at my name and then they say his name doesn't even come up (laughs) yeah makes it matter (laughs) (laughs) it really does seem like overkill to send the justice league after a bank robber but it does but you think about back in the comics we read growing up, going after a bank robbery was totally something the superheroes mm-hmm. would do. But I think it does make sense, though, later on when John's talking with Max about it, as it's the first time, you know, the four are out. So it's giving the other two newer people to a chance to, you know, work as a team and fire her a chance to kind of work out the, the changes she's got going on. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and honestly, if memory serves, this is one of the few chances we're actually going to see Light Ray and Orion do something before they end up getting whisked back out of the book. So, oh. yeah, they, they again, I, I don't know for sure because I haven't read ahead, but my memory is they don't, either they don't really hang around a lot or they just don't make a lot of, a, a lot of action in the book. Either way, it's, ni- it's nice to see him here because it's fun. Yeah. Uh, I, I like Orion sort of in his always angry phase. He's a little bit like Barda in that respect. Mm-hmm. Light, Light Ray, I haven't really figured out yet. Uh, I mean, so far, he's basically being polite, and he talks about how he's tidy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was interesting to see how powerful Sonar was, that he was able to yeah. take them all down. I mean, he is a joke, but at the same time, I was like, well, I guess if he gave Hal Jordan a run for his money over and over and over, I guess he had to be sure. kind of powerful. He, he had to be somewhat, you know. At least he had to go toe-in-toe with, with Hal. Right. And to see him just kind of take out Orion like that with, well, I've never tried that in this setting. Boom. Right. <laughs> And I, I liked when all the glass is falling down and mm-hmm. fire fuses all of the glass. Uh, it's a great idea, you know, to, to yeah. keep shards of glass from cutting people and fuse it into one giant chunk. That's a great idea. And then, of course, it's pretty funny because, you know, Orion can't catch it without it breaking. But, I mean, that was, I would thought that was pretty clever. I, 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 I tend to think about these adventures in terms of, like, role-playing. Uh, okay. And so I'm like, okay, that's a great idea from the player kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's a great way of actually looking at this kind of a series is it's a, really about a role-playing team and now they got some new players on and okay what's the silliest kind of funnest thing i can do to instead of just a normal oh i just disintegrate it all or 
I do something like that. That's a, that's a fun way of thinking about it. Well, it is, it is very much like role-playing because, I mean, basically when you're sitting around role-playing with your friends, your goal is to beat the bad guys and make your friends around the table laugh. I mean, those <laughs> are pretty much the things you're trying to do in role-playing. So, and eat a bunch of junk food. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, the good old days. I'm still doing it, man. Yeah. I just, I did for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually DMing uh, some Dungeons and Dragons. So I, my, my point was trying to, you know, total party kill them, but. <laughs> you were that kind of jink. No, no. DM. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I like is when we meet Wally for the first time in this issue, you see uh, some fun detail of Sona running in the background panel in the street. Then he's knocking over an old lady in the street. And then Wally, you see Wally running past her as he's chasing on the fight. I thought that was a really great detail and some a uh, little fun detail that the artist put in here. I'm embarrassed to say I never noticed that till this moment. I'm looking at it here. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah. So that there's is... like high stepping yeah. across the street and you see the little knockover. And then at the end, the old lady's like, help me, help me. Right. <laughs> Now, by the way, for those of you at home, Chris Franklin, this does not count as one of those where I say I never notice because this is not on the cover. This is inside the issue. Chris likes to count all the times I don't notice something on the cover. <laughs> wow, I feel actually pretty good that I noticed something that you didn't. There you go. Well done, sir. And I thought I was the novice here. Wow. <laughs> Now, about Wally's appearance, when he comes out, he's, he's miserable because he's just gotten mm-hmm. rejected for another thing. And they don't say it in the issue, but the implication, going back to Just League 38, uh, America, was is that Crimson Fox has totally blackballed Wally from like ever working in the journalism field again because he just can't get a job doing anything. And he can't, he's like, wow, it's almost like they're out to get me. I'm like, yeah, I think, I think she did uh, blackball yeah. you, buddy. Yeah, I think she must have got a hold of a lot more people because in here he mentions yeah, how he tried talking to other places and still can't get anywhere. <laughs> well, she's kind of supposedly Bruce Wayne sort of level in Paris. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that and had me kind of go back and read that. It gave a little more character to Wally. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see what, what his motivation was here and why he's doing what he's doing. And, and I think this is an example of uh, Giffen and DiMatteis starting to plan ahead. Like mm-hmm. uh, whenever you talk to them or listen to them in an interview, they always say basically like they were just flying by the seat of their pants every issue. But I think clearly what you're starting to see is they, they set up this Wally Tortellini thing you know, several months ago, mm-hmm. knowing that they were going to come back to it. I have no, it, it almost seems too much that uh, they really set it up in that Justice League number 38 issue that they ha- they definitely had plans to come back to this. Yeah. I like that. Um, when you get stories that are building on, on the world around you, mm-hmm. um, you have that consistency going on. These are the comics that I really enjoy from back then. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're so well done. They're so well crafted. The team really knew what they were doing in and out. And this issue is a great example of why this book is so fun and bonkers and everything. Because, again, we kind of mentioned early on, the Justice League are not the focus of this issue. They're certainly in it. But Mm -hmm. Wally is the protagonist of the issue. Wally Tortellini, a down-on-his-luck character who's trying to take down our heroes, he's he's the protagonist. And you kind of root for him by the end. Yeah, that's one of the things I like uh, about this series is that just the character building, the more in-depth that they go and, and make you really enjoy the characters. I mean, we're we're having fun with Wally, and we're also having fun with these villains that I, I don't know anything about. Right. But by the end, I'm like, oh, I want to know a little bit more about these guys. <laughs> well, let's start talking about those. So what do you, what do you got uh-huh. on the villains? Because there's a ton of them in his place. Uh, well, you know, let's... Let's kind of just go through the list here. I don't know who Quake Master is. Okay. I, um, if, if I didn't cover Who's Who, you know, on that other podcast, the Who's Who yeah. podcast, I would have no idea who Quake Master is either. So don't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I don't know. Brainstorm. A lot of these guys, I don't know. Brainstorm, I only know from Who's Who as well. Uh, let's see who else is in here. The Cavalier. I, I don't I know I covered him in Who's Who. I don't even remember covering him in Who's Who. That's how bad that one is. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Calculator and Calendar Man, I, they're talking yeah. to each other, which I love. I I've remember them just because they were so bizarre and they shared a page entry. They actually, in Who's Who, they actually shared a page. It was like a half split, one above, one oh, below. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, so maybe that's good. Could callback then and then uh crowbar and black mass i knew because they were both part of the cadre who were villains that fought the justice league detroit so i knew them that was exciting for me to be like oh i know those guys (laughs) (laughs) and then some of the just the odds and end of the other ones that you see in the background or that he names in the bar like you uh micro or was it micro or mr micro mr micro i don't know that guy well he was made up for this issue that's why oh (laughs) yeah i had to research that myself (laughs) but you know that that's the part that i liked is you know he goes into the dark side bar which you know is that a star wars play on that maybe you know you come to the dark side i gotta assume it's something like that probably yeah i would think so Uh, but just you know you open the door and then it's like hey Hey, it's Bitto or Vito. I don't know. Bitto, Vito, whatever. Well, his name's Bitto. Well, they always make it. They, his name's Bitto, but they make fun of his name throughout the whole issue, which is a great ongoing gag, too. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. Sonar calls everyone by their name. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't say, you know, well, he says Mr. Micro, I suppose. But for the most yeah. part, he's walking up to people and he's, he's calling them by their name, you know? Yeah. It's just a great place to be in a bar, you know? Who wouldn't want to go to a place like that where everybody knows your name? <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> it's a just nice casual place like that. So <laughs> having and they're having some drinks. It's, it's a cool place. And then you got the list of the villains that are either dead, imprisoned, insane, or I couldn't really read the last one. Oh, it's it's Crisis of Conscience, and that okay. one's actually that one's actually the most relevant of them all. Um, it says Crisis of Conscience, Big Sir, Major Disaster, Clock King, Bruce, and Multi because Bruce is a bad guy apparently, and Multi Man, and that is the list of. Justice League members who used to be villains who have now joined the Justice League as uh-huh. Justice League Antarctica. So they are the crisis of conscience, which is a great idea. I love that. Uh-huh. And then under dead, who is Spaz Man? That's awful. It's like a <laughs> terrible name. <laughs> Oh man! So I, I, a couple of things too. Like I love Crowbar okay. is just gossiping when they mm-hmm. when they when we walk in, we hear him. Uh, he's saying, you know, he's he's talking about Batman and Catwoman, and he's implying that Batman and Catwoman have been getting it on for years, and he thought everyone knew, and he's like surprised that Black Mass had no idea. And then mm-hmm. you know, Brainwave keeps losing his crap, yelling at him, saying, "Are we going to play cards or not?" <laughs> And all Brainway wants is to win back his $45. I know, right? It's like, how down and out are these guys? Well, that's the other interesting thing, too. Because, like, Sonar says, he goes over, as they're walking to the table, he says, these guys are interesting. Outside, he said, some of these guys are so brilliant that they turn to crime just to challenge Mm -hmm. themselves. And then that's when I looked in the Who's Who entry. Specifically, as I got ready here, I'm like, okay, let's look these guys up. BlackRock, he was the chief research scientist for a a, a television company, or maybe it was a radio, it was United Broadcast casting company, whatever that was. Mm-hmm. Black Mass is a physicist from MIT. Mm-hmm. Brainstorm is a brilliant scientist. Quake Master was a renowned architect and builder. I mean, all of these are really successful guys. Cavalier's not a genius, but he is a wealthy collector. And Crowbar, he's just a punk. But like all these other characters like are legitimately genius-level guys, which is fascinating. I love that they picked up on yeah, that. I think that's really cool. And then just to see that, you know, like Sonar said, they're a little crazy, though. <laughs> they, they've gone over the edge and... And, and you can definitely tell that 
they are playing with the full deck. Right, right. And again, it's it's. I think part of it is living in the bottom of the barrel. You know, I mean, you get beat every time you go out there. You've tried to make a living of beating the the good guys, and it's just never working out. So eventually, you just kind of lose your marbles. But why not hang out at a nice place? Exactly. As the, the, the dark side. Yeah. Altogether. So, questions for you. Quakemaster, why does he have a T on his forehead? I don't know. The only <laughs> thing I can... Th- think of maybe is it like his jackhammer symbol that is the only thing that's a great guess that's the only guess i've got as well as instead it, it looks like the titan's tower really yeah. what it looks like i was thinking the same thing i'm like that is weird that shouldn't i see like a q or something on his head hey you know he's got a q on the chest if i remember correctly but i even went back and checked the who's who episode we did on it and i was wondering about the t back then too i have no clue but man adam hughes art in this thing oh yeah unbelievable I think uh, just his layouts, again, and the facial expressions that he puts in here Mm -hmm. throughout the – just pulls you into the story. Yeah. If you could pick a page in this uh, of the art, for me, I would pick the silent nine-panel page Mm -hmm. of each player around the table – uh, just to have, and I'd love to have him kind of sign that. Oh, it's a gorgeous piece. Yeah, you're right, because you got Sonar, you're just sweating bullets, sweating bullets, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't tell anything on Black Rock because he's got the mask on. But mm-hmm. Brainwave, like his eyes look so dark and just hooded and just looks, you know, he looks super intense. intense. Yep. Yeah. Crowbar looks drunk. Uh, <laughs> Cavalier really looks deep in thought. I mean, really, yeah. really, like, really trying to figure out how to make this work. Black Mask knows he's holding crap. Quakemaster's got a pretty good poker face on. Mm-hmm. And then Tortellini, he's like, I have got this. And he's got, he's the only one you can see a pile of money in front of, too, by the way. Yeah. yeah. He knows he's got this, which is funny because earlier he said, well, I, I'm not very good at cards. And then everyone's like, great, come on. And then, you know, Wally's cleaning up, which is a great gag always. Yeah, him just going all in at the end here. And all the villains start throwing in their different power items. <laughs> and Sonar's like, well, I don't got anything. But And then uh, Quakemaster's like, I'm out, you know, because he didn't seem to have any good cards. And then Sonar gets him to throw in his jackhammer. Right. He calls him Bob, of course. You know, it's... Wait, he's a Jack. Oh, wait, his name's Bob. He's Bob the Builder. I didn't think about that. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, she, he makes him put in his jackhammer. What a, what a dick move as a friend. <laughs> yeah, but the guy does it. So you can tell that. He's like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll help you, buddy, out. So, oh, so funny. It's fun. It's, so it's such funny. a great character moments in here uh, uh. on the villain side. It's just... I really enjoyed reading this. So I'm, I'm, it, it's awesome to read. It's super fun. And you're right about Adam Hughes's art, especially, like you said, those, those nine panel pages. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. The sad part is that they, Adam Hughes has been gone for a few issues, so it's nice to have him back. But this is uh, next issue is actually going to be his last issue as regular penciler, oh. uh, which is really sad. So we're, we're just sucking up every panel we can right now mm-hmm. and just really enjoying it. And in the in the weeds a little bit here, like I love his art. Now, Jose Marzan is his inker on this issue, but it does make me kind of miss Art Nichols. You know, Marzan's still great. I mean, everything looks great, but he brings out a lot of the darker inking, uh, a lot of the shadows. And maybe that works because it's a dark side bar. I don't know. Yeah. For, for my money, I like Art Nichols on Adam Hughes or Carl Story. I think both of those guys really look great. I do think you're, you're right. The heavier inking that is on this uh, kind of fits it, though, especially yeah. in the bar area. You get that dark, seedy kind of background going on. Yeah. I got one more thing about the bar, but before I say that, I want to mention over on page 12, we see Orion. 
He's, he's, he's ticked off. He's storming away from Guy Gardner because Guy's really ticked him off. Mm-hmm. And you see his costume is colored exactly the same as Superman's. Like when he's got yeah. all his gear off, it's got the same colors as Superman, which blew my mind. I didn't notice that. Now, uh, wow, I just see that now too. I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's the blue suit. It's the blue bodysuit, the red trunks, the red boots, the yellow belt, the whole thing. I mean, it looks identical. Which I mean, he is kind of like a Superman esque level character, but the attitude he was he was rocking the mullet before Superman was. <laughs> Maybe Superman's just trying to copy Orion. Maybe that's it. It could be. (laughs) (laughs) So my last note here on the bar I want to talk about was this character Moish. M-O-I-S-H. So bizarre. It's a character that was created for this issue. He looks very weird. He's got on like giant earphones and like really cheap looking goggles. And again, his his chest symbol is a G inside the Superman S shield. So it's Mm -hmm. it's not an S, but it's a G instead. Even though his name is Moish, it's a G. So maybe Moish is his real name. I don't know. His supervillain name starts with a G. I, I don't know. Mo- I looked it up. Moish is, uh, comes from the Hebrew, and it means Moses. So I don't, maybe it's some kind of inj- inside joke with Demetrius and Giffen. Oh, yeah. I don't know. But to go further, so he's got the G. Then he's the bottom half's all in drag. He's got on a skirt. He's got on fishnets. He's got on women's oh. shoes. <laughs> and he's talking with a British accent. I mean, it's, it's so bizarre because it's like, why go to the effort to create this character with a lot of, well, maybe it's just for fun, but a lot of, like, uh, you feel there's yeah, backstory. Yeah. Here and he's in like I don't know two panels and that's it. But it, it feels like there's so much to him. Like I, I would expect to see him in other comics. I guess I didn't really look at the bottom half of him right in that conversation until you just said it now. Yeah, it's such an interesting amount of stuff to put together. And again, with the accent and everything, and it, for for a complete throwaway character. And then he asked uh, if you're going to create the movie. He wants to have Tom Selleck play. Him. Right, I know. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, maybe a younger Tom Selleck, but. With the mustache, preferably. Yes. <laughs> so here's the crazy thing, right? So Moish is in basically two panels here, right? And then he he does appear in the next issue, but I think it's just in the background. So really, not much, nothing, really. So he's And that's it. Hmm. He doesn't appear again until, believe it or not, just a couple months ago. Moish went for 30 years without an appearance, and yet he wow. just appeared the other day uh, in August wow. 2020, so just a couple months before we were recording this, in an issue called DC Pride Number 1. And in that, he's a bartender working at a bar called Time in a Bottle in London. So they're picking up on the accent. They're picking up on him being in a bar. And you look at him in the issue. I, I, I shared the page here for you in the Google Docs so you can see him. Mm-hmm. He's got the same G symbol on his shirt. You can't see if he's wearing a skirt or anything underneath. So how bizarre. 30 years, this guy. And, and rightfully so. Up? Well, yeah. Well, and he had rightfully so no reason to reappear because he's a two-panel mm-hmm. character. He's a joke character. To, to, but to bring him back and... I, what are the odds of it being at the same time we're going to record this? Yeah. So, absolutely nuts. Absolutely yeah. nuts. Well, you know what? I waited four years or so to get on the show, so you know, <laughs> what's what's 30 more or 26 more to get into another issue? Uh, but it's good to see him actually working instead right. of uh, on the other side of the bar. That's a good point. That's a good point. He's pouring booze, so yeah. So funny. <laughs> so yeah, folks, that's DC Pride number one, August 2021. Check out Moish. He's, uh, he's on one page. So in the time in a bottle story. <laughs> Oh, jeez. All right, Pat. Well, this has been a super fun comic to talk about. I mean, I absolutely enjoyed this. I love Wally walking away with all the gadgets. I mean, (laughs) he's the man holding all the cards here now. Oh, my gosh. 
Yeah, he's got that big stride going on. Like, I can just hear that song, you know, ain't nothing going to break in my stride. Ain't nothing going to hold me down. Man, I can't wait to see what's going to happen in the next issue, what he does with all the toys that he has now. Now, I always say I don't read ahead. I couldn't stop myself. This was so good. I did go ahead and read the next issue, and it has a great payoff. So it's well worth it. So, oh, my gosh. So I got to ask you, Pat, as we're closing out the issue here, was it a good issue? Was it a great issue? Was it, what do you think? I think it was a great issue. I think with this issue, it just pulls in the characters and gives you some fun background on the villains. And that's what I liked about it. It just pulled me into the villain universe a little bit more and make me want to, I kind of want to hang out at the bar and just kind of people watch. Right. And see what's going on. I totally agree. This issue is all about character and it's all about characters you never realized you wanted to care about. And that's the beauty of it. To make you care about Sonar, to make you care about Wally. It's it's a real success. It's a real mm-hmm. success in that way. Agree. So now, Pat, we got to come to the hard part. Mm. This is where we got to decide the Plahaha Award. And this is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Pat will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, Pat, you're the guest, so you get to go first. What is your nomination? Boy, there's so many different ones in here and how oh, to yeah. play it off. But I think what I'm going to choose is a joke that pays off in, in a little bit. So it's the setup is that Sonar thinks that the JLA just kind of laugh at him whenever he's around or whenever his name's mentioned. But the payoff is later on during the fight, he actually asks them and John replies back, well, actually, your name never comes up. (laughs) That's a good one. It's absolutely a good one. I love that bit. Uh, Poor Sonar. I mean, just Mm -hmm. to to, to know that he's, you know, one of these bottom of the barrel kind of characters, just so disappointing. And then it it sort of gets carried further when Beetle can't stop laughing about how they got beat by someone like him. He can't even say Sonar's name without Mm -hmm. laughing. And Wally can't even say his name right to begin with, too. Was it Vito, Beto, whatever? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. The guy's just a, 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 you know, a no-name. So that is an absolutely funny joke. It's not the funniest in the book. You're wrong about that, sir. But that's okay. I'll forgive you. The best is on page... It starts on page 15. It's in the bar. So they're all on the dark side. This is when Sonar and Waller are going around and saying, hey, everyone. In the background of the last panel... So you've got Sonar at the Uh bar talking, and then you see the the guy who the agents at the end who are doing stuff. He's sort of in the foreground. But behind him, with no dialogue, are Kite Man and Bug-Eyed Bandit clearly having an argument. And, like, Kite Man's pointing at Bug-Eyed Bandit. Then you go to the next page, and they're rolling around on the floor in a knockdown, drag-out fight. And he's just saying, I did two beat up Superman. Did not. Did two. Did not. Did two. And it just, I mean, every time I think about it, <laughs> I can't stop laughing about Bug-Eyed Bandit and Kite Man rolling on the ground in a, in a knockout fight. It's just freaking hysterical, especially since there was no dialogue to start it off. You just kind of had to interpret what the heck they're arguing about. I yeah. absolutely love this. And for me, it's the funniest moment in the issue. It, re- it reminds me of watching two siblings fight. Did not. Yeah. Did two. Did not. It's mine. It's no. It's yours. Mom. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So this is the point where we got to decide oh, who, uh, who, who wins the funniest bit. They're both good bits. They both pay off on different pages. So uh, make a case for yours, sir. Well, uh, the case for mine would be that Sonar's so down on himself and he thinks nobody cares about him and all that. And then when he... 
then he starts thinking, oh, my, I must be some big kind of a, a villain now that to get the Justice League come and go after me. Then to find out they really don't care anyway. They're just there to do their job and they don't really say him his name around the halls at all. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. You know what? I got to the way you explained yours. I think I like yours a lot better. <laughs> I was just about to give it to you because oh, – were you? Well, because Sonar really is the focus of the issue. Sonar and Wally are sort of the protagonists of the issue. And it is a really good buildup. I was running away. And he's like, I suppose you'd be flattered. I mean, that they still consider me some kind of threat. You know, I mean, that's it's mm-hmm. great. And then it, and when it pays off and he just loses his mind and he's so angry. Uh, so, ah, uh, tell you oh. what, why don't we call it a draw since we're both ready to give it up for each other. Uh, I think both moments are very funny. Does that sound fair? I think that sounds fair, Shake, and you just got yourself an undercarriage cleaning. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> so It sounds so dirty. Uh, <laughs> it does, and I just thought about that. Sorry. But, so congratulations to Sonar and Bug-Eyed Bandit and Kite Man. You all have won the coveted Bwahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Now, Pat, I need to ask a favor. Yes. Would you mind hanging around the New York Embassy for a while and make sure that nothing disappears? I'm worried that if Wally Tortellini comes around, he might convince Blue Beetle to play a round of poker, and Beetle will probably end up betting the JLA shuttle or something like that. Yeah, sure. I can kind of walk around uh, in between uh, letting the wax kind of settle and and buffing (laughs) that I've got going on. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Now, don't worry, Pat. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy for the 19th issue of Justice League Europe. All right, our bags are packed and we got the snacks. It's time for the Lombox Crusade road trip to the Lombox Mobile crew. Check on. Check on. Dang it. Dang it. Everyone buckled up. Here we go. Well, now that the garage is empty, Gene will have more space to record episodes of LBC Irregulars, the indexing of the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes TV series. Oh, no. Did anyone remember to leave Clinton some food down in the basement? He's going to need it as he makes more episodes of Fan Film Fridays, his ongoing look at online fan films. Why are you speaking in such a scripted manner, Dark Web? Anyway, you can relax. I asked... Rick, or was it Jeff? Who can remember? I asked the attic guy to come down from time to time to check in on Clinton. You know, take some breaks from recording Monday Movie Muck about his movie review show. Weasel's call. Did you give Rick the key to the basement? Key. Sounds like LBC headquarters is in good hands, Death Probe. Right you are, Christados. Oh, Pat, can we stop off at KB Toy Store? I'm going to pick up some Transformers and G.I. Joes. They remind me of Transformers Chronicles and G.I. Joe Chronicles. Our show's going through the Marvel run of Transformers comics and the Devil's Due run of Joe comics. Well, while you guys are doing that, we can also stop by a Blockbuster video and get some tapes to watch for action film face-off. That's the show where we discuss two action films and have them duke it out to see which one is the episode champion. Is that VHS or Beta? Eh, either one's fine. We've got a lot of stops to make, but if we can, let's squeeze in the Walden books and score some comics for us to talk about on Crusader Chronicles, the show where we move chronologically through the Amazing Spider-Man comics and include a bonus issue from the same release date as the Spidey recovery. I will definitely keep an eye out for our Walden books. It'll come in handy for the pure Lombok's Crusade episodes, our time capsule show where we take a deep dive into a randomly selected comic and talk about news, music, and movies and ads that were popular when the books were released. I'll also be on the lookout for our electronic boutique, EB, if you guys don't know the lingo back then, so we can get some more comic-related video games for us to discuss on Comics to Council Crusade. Good thinking. 
If time permits, let's hit Circuit City. I need more positrons for our pop culture positcast show. The one where we find all the good stuff in pop culture that others seem to poo-poo. Positrons? Shut up and go with it. These old-timey, out-of-business store jokes doing anything for you folks? Well, if you like old-timey stuff, we also offer Saturday Matinee Theater. Our look back at old TV shows, serials, and films that have kind of been forgotten. I think that about covers it. We definitely want to be your road trip crew, folks. Whether it's your commute to work or a road trip of your own, why not pass the time with us, your friends at the Long Box Crusade? Once again, that's Long Box Crusade, available on all your finer podcatchers. Good job, team. I'm getting hungry. Pat, stop at the next Kenny Rogers Roasters that you see. Or Pentagons. Burger Chef! And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe number 19. Back from break, and I'm here with my second co-host for this episode. My second guest is a published kid-lit author. He's written a couple of books targeted at middle school-age kids entitled Monster Problems and Super Problems, the latter book being about superheroes. Yes, that's right, folks. My guest is the Judy Bloom of comic book fans. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. Jason R. Lady. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Jason. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? I'm doing good, Jack. Thanks for having me. It's a beautiful day here in Paris, uh, more beautiful than my day here in uh, Cleveland, Ohio where it's overcast and raining, which it's been for a couple weeks now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that comes with this time of year, unfortunately. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, we had a beautiful day here yesterday. We went to the beach, and it was gorgeous. I mean, a little bit chilly, but still, it was absolutely beautiful here. So take that, Ohio boy. Yeah, I hear that you were celebrating a special occasion, right? I believe it might have been your uh, wife's birthday yesterday, you told me? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Jason, you would know that. And um, why exactly do you know that uh, it was uh, we were celebrating yesterday? Well, for everybody listening, uh, Shag set up a uh, time and day to do this uh, recording, and it was actually uh, yesterday. And then a few days later, he contacts me. The sheepishness is like bleeding through the Facebook message uh, saying, <laughs> oh, it's my wife's birthday. I should have got it on my wife's birthday can we do it uh on sunday instead and you know luckily i have no life so i have nothing else to do i just spend my days sitting around staring at the wall so <laughs> i was uh i was like sure why not but i told shag that you know you're in good company because i've had similar things happen to me i am uh known to this day as the guy among my friends who made plans on our anniversary my wife and mine's anniversary not once but twice oh dude twice. yeah i know right rookie move and this is years into my marriage where like you should have that locked in you know like when your anniversary is <laughs> so yeah i made plans with my buddy ryan uh the the one time and went home and said i'm hanging out with ryan on wednesday and my wife's like no you're not i'm like why not <laughs> she's like well what date is that i'm like june 19th oh <laughs> so shag if you're a terrible husband so am i we're <laughs> we can form a support group just a little tip for you and that story you shared is it's never a good idea to hang out with a guy named ryan i've tried it it didn't end well so uh <laughs> very no, in, true look at where things are now yeah. exactly now in my 
my defense, uh, technically yesterday was not my wife's birthday. It's just the day we were supposed to celebrate it. Either way, uh, yeah, I, I screwed up pretty bad. So thank you for being so accommodating. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Like I said, I have nothing else to do, you know, other than go on podcasts once uh, every few years. So. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you here. When you say you're sitting around the house with nothing to do, which, by the way, you should probably be writing books. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and you're thinking back and waxing back to your love of the JLI. How did all that get started? Where did you fall over the JLI? What's your origin story with the book? Sure. So my history with reading comic books in general uh, started, you know, as a little kid, you know, probably like a lot of us, you know, as a little kid in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, I was reading a lot of uh, Richie Rich and Archie and Casper the Friendly Ghost, Uncle Scrooge, a lot of those. And uh, so definitely had a lot of kind of comic book stuff in my DNA, you know, right from the get go. And the DC characters, you know, were probably on my radar as early as I can remember, I think because of the Super Friends cartoon. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're a kid growing up in the United States, you know, you're going to know who Superman is. You're going to at least have an understanding who Batman is, you know, Wonder Woman. So I knew who they all were. When I got into superhero comics was actually over in uh, Germany, believe it or not. Uh, My dad uh, was a service member. He was in the U.S. Army for 33 years. And when I was a kid, uh, he was stationed in Germany. My family lived over there with him. And there was a a family that we knew who collected comics. Uh, They were friends with my family. They had a daughter that was about my sister's age. And they had stacks and stacks of X-Men and Avengers. And you can kind of see where this is going. They were Marvel people. They were mm-hmm. people who like Marvel comics. So we'd go visit them, spend the night. And, uh, you know, I was this little kid and I got into that. I love these comics. And then my Aunt Ruthie came over from the States and visited us uh, one year uh, while we were over there. And she brought a stack of comics just randomly to me. And one of them was an issue of Amazing Spider Man, uh, Amazing Spider Man 280. Uh, I remember that to this day. I still have it, in fact. And that got me hooked on Spider Man. So with the X Men, the Avengers influence over from those friends I mentioned, and then my aunt bringing me the Spider-Man comics, we were hooked on Marvel comics. There was no escape. <laughs> we were uh, like uh, like fish on a hook, uh, for sure. So the extremists are right up your alley, then. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> I get where they're coming from. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Saw those Marvel uh, homages uh, very early on. In fact, I think my dad noticed it. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Yeah, before I did. So, yeah. So, over there, uh, they used to have on the military bases in Japan and Germany and overseas, uh, these bookstores called the Stars and Stripes. And they were there for, you know, Americans and that lived over there. And, uh, you know, they had books and newspapers and magazines, but they also had a big comic book section. And so, we would drop by our local Stars and Stripes bookstore. Uh, They had all the comic books in the uh, back right-hand corner. And um, they had a big Marvel section and a big DC section. So we'd go and get our Marvels, you know, and as you can imagine, our comic book budget, you know, in the late to mid 80s was really being taken up by all this Marvel stuff because you couldn't just buy Avengers. You also had to get West Coast Avengers. <laughs> it was by X-Men. You had to get X-Factor and New Mutants. You couldn't just get Amazing Spider-Man. You also had to get Spectacular Spider-Man. Exactly. Exactly. So we're picking up all those comics, but I would kind of look over at the DC section sometime and be, you know, sometimes and be like, hmm, I don't know who these some of these characters are. Like, I know who Batman is is and Wonder Woman and stuff, but who's Blue Beetle? Who's Booster Gold? Who's Captain Atom? They looked really cool and they had cool names and I was really intrigued, but you know, there wasn't really a budget, you know, for buying any more comics at that point. We moved back to the States and that's when we discovered the glory of the local comic shop. My dad was stationed at Fort Knox, Kentucky and a little town outside of uh, Fort Knox, Radcliffe, Kentucky. There was a little store that unfortunately is no longer in existence, uh, Comics to Go. Proprietor was a man named Kevin Hill. Kevin, if you're listening to this, hello, hello out there. <laughs> and he was our guy. He would pull our comics for us. And we had these really cool uh, Saturday mornings. My dad 
dad was a soldier. So he would get up at, you know, 4 a.m. or so and like clean the house and do all this stuff. And he would get me up and we would go run errands together. And he always had this big list he was going through. And the last stop, you know, as far as all the errands we were running was to go buy comics to go, to go to our comic book store and pick up our comics and talk. We always hang around and talk to uh, the proprietor, uh, Kevin Hill, and got to know him. Really nice guy. And he recommended Justice League International to us. Nice. yeah, so he was kind of the uh, the guy who uh, got us into it. We were like, oh, we don't know. And so he uh, gave us this little uh, kind of a pamphlet kind of comic that was like a free thing you could pick up that had like previews of upcoming trade paperbacks. Mm-hmm. And the preview uh, in there that really got our attention and the reason why he gave it to us was for uh, Justice League A New Beginning, that trade mm-hmm. paperback that came out, probably the first one that collected yep. any JLI, um, the first seven issues, right? And the pages they previewed in there were the infamous one punch. Uh, Guy Gardner gets knocked out by Batman. And we were just cracking up reading this. Like, this just looks hilarious. And I remember my mom looked at it. My sister looked at it. They also read the comics, too, that we brought home. And uh, they thought it looked funny, too. So I had a Walden Books gift certificate. Shout out the Walden Books. Represent. (laughs) Yeah, represent the Walden. I went to our local Walden Books. I had a gift certificate I got in for Christmas. And I picked up a copy of Justice League A New Beginning and read it uh, probably in just like, you know, an hour. And, uh, we were just hooked on JLI from that point. We got JLE, we got, you know, Justice League Quarterly, and we really got into it. And we, you know, thanks to the local comic stores, we were able to find all the back issues. Because I think at that point, it was actually just before the Despero saga, I think, and mm. the Extremist saga. So we were coming at a kind of an atypical point for these comics as far as the new stuff. But yeah, we went and found all those back issues. And we just loved the humor. You know, for years afterward, we would joke about uh, Manga Con, we would joke about Elrond and the Scarlet Skier and Mr. Nebula. Like, this is kind of became family like jokes, you know? That is so not the way most uh, comic book fan families work. <laughs> no, they're not. It's not the typical experience, right? But yeah, my dad and I collected together. I think that he had collected comics when he was a kid. So I think this was kind of his excuse, you know, like, because hey, back then, you know, a lot of adults didn't really advertise they did this necessarily. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was kind of an excuse to, you know, get back in there. And, you know, that just became a, a big thing with my family. And uh, unfortunately, he uh, passed away three years ago. I'm so Um, sorry. Yeah, no, thank you. And but up until, you know, the last few weeks, even of his life, we were joking about, you know, Manga Khan. And he loved all those characters that were like really pompous and bombastic, like major disaster (laughs) and stuff. And, uh, you know, it was just a really special thing for us and brought us a lot of joy. And I can say for JLE in particular, um, and also Excalibur over in Marvel, you know, those characters living in England, you really had kind of that feel of living overseas, uh, for sure, in these comics. You can kind of identify everybody around you speaking a different language. It's a different culture. So, you know, JLE kind of had a special place in my heart because of that. But, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was bored out of my mind and I was looking for things to do. And I was like, huh, I wonder if there's a a podcast out there that uh, covers these comics because I had pared down my comic collection a while back, but I had kept my entire run of all these comics. It's like, there's no way I'm getting rid of these. I'm going to keep these till I die. get buried with them. Like King (laughs) King Tut, you know, they're going to be in my tomb with me. (laughs) And, you know, I was wondering, is there a podcast out there that uh, goes through these comics? And it was so cool to discover your podcast. I was just blown away that someone's been going through this series issue by issue. So I've just been loving it. So it's been cool to revisit these comics that were just such uh, special memories, you know, for my, me and my dad, me and my family.
family growing up. Well, that is an incredible story. Uh, very heartwarming about you and your dad. I I cannot even imagine that kind of relationship growing up with my family members being that into it together. That's absolutely wonderful. And I do like, especially at the end, when you talked about this podcast, how you specifically started by saying you were bored out of your mind. So <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably still are if you're listening to this. But no, um, thank you so much for sharing that story about your dad. I, I read some of that on the air several episodes ago, if you folks may recall in the feedback, because Jason had written in, but just hearing you tell it is, is so powerful and so amazing. And even if one split second of this podcast and all the years we're doing it brings any sort of memory back about you and your dad, it's all worth it. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, to bring back those special memories and go through the series and kind of has given, enabled me to uh, you know read through it again with new eyes. Uh, it's been really cool. It's been really special. I've really appreciated it. So Jason, on top of your love of comics, you're also a published author. You're writing novels for middle-aged kids. So tell us a little bit about those. Well, I think you said middle-aged kids. I think you meant middle-grade kids. <laughs> I, did. I think you and I are middle-aged kids. <laughs> <laughs> those are all fair distinctions. <laughs> yes, yes. Middle-grade, yeah. So my books are aimed at an audience that's probably about fourth grade up through seventh grade. Uh, younger kids, uh, I've heard parents reading them to them. But I published uh, two books so far, uh, Monster Problems and Super Problems. And these books are in a loosely connected series together. I do have a third one on the way. These books are about uh, middle school kids who get a hold of a magic pen. Uh, they're called the Magic Pen Adventures, the series is called. And everything that they draw becomes real, that these mm. kids draw with the pen. But they never realize that at first. And so what they draw becomes real then ends up causing problems for them. So in my second book, Super Problems, uh, the main character, Scott, draws himself and all his friends as superheroes and gives them like a super villain to fight and the whole nine yards uh, a reason for being in terms of a superhero team. And then it all becomes real and they have to figure out how to use their powers. They have to figure out how to defeat the villain and uh, basically wackiness and hijinks ensue. Uh, they're called the Alpaca Defense Squad because they have to protect the school's pet alpaca who <laughs> has come to life. Well, it was live. It was alive already, but it uh, can talk now and they have to be a bodyguard for the alpaca because the villain is the stinky sock. He's a living smelly sock who wants to create a sock army from the wool of the alpaca. So the oh book God. is them. So it is crazy. It's a scenario probably worthy of a JLI comic, actually. <laughs> I was going to say Keith Giffen wrote Ambush Bug and there was a hyper intelligent evil sock in that. So it feels like I'm feeling shades of Argyle from Ambush Bugs. This is great. Yeah, very much so. And my writing style and the, the humor, because it's very humorous. The stories, uh, they do have, uh, there's some lessons learned. You know, the kids always learn more about themselves in the process of their adventure, but I don't hit people over the head with it. It's there if you uh, can pick that up. But I like to give my, you know, audience credit for being smart, uh, especially kids. You know, they can see through it if you're being preachy or talking down to them. So there's definitely, you know, messages in these books, but they're not, uh, again, they're not hit over the head with it. But there's a lot of humor, there's a lot of zaniness. And the JLI with its kind of, uh, you know, the wonderful dialogue by J.M. DeMatteis with the the bickering and the back and forth between the characters, it has absolutely informed my writing uh, to this day. You could read the characters and be like, oh yeah, I could see Beetle or Booster, <laughs> you know, being <laughs> these guys and having these conversations. <laughs> that is awesome, man. I, I, to take your passion for something that you love and turning into a product that you can produce and, and entertain kids, that's fantastic. So way to go, man. Yeah, 
absolutely. It's a fun uh, age group to write for because they're old enough to appreciate a more sophisticated plot. They're kind of beyond picture books, Mm -hmm. but they are also young enough too, where they still appreciate absurdity. They still appreciate humor. I think once people get older, they only want to read serious things, you know, dystopian literature, (laughs) serious books for serious people. And that's an age group that still appreciates talking alpacas, living stinky socks, you know, and silliness. So it's right up my alley. In fact, when I was looking for what age group I should write for, when I wanted to write books, my wife was like, you know, I observed that you are a middle school kid at heart. Maybe you should write for middle school. (laughs) You're not wrong. And sure enough, that was my niche. (laughs) There's there's something called the theory of 11 that I was introduced to, which is basically you take two guys and stick them, two adult males and stick them together. And they suddenly fall into the trap of acting like 11 year olds. So that, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. That could be your target demographic. I love it. Sounds similar to my wife's theory of uh, the more men get into a room together, the more immature they get collectively. Exponentially, the immaturity grows, the more men get added. <laughs> You're not kidding. You're absolutely not kidding. And this comic's a perfect example of that. So <laughs> Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> so I, I got to tell you, I wish these books had been in publication when my kids were that age. So if somebody has kids in that age and they want to get their hands on these books, where will they find them? Sure. You could find them any place, you know, books are sold online. Um, You won't really be able to go to your local bookstore and find them, but you can find them on Amazon. Uh, You can find them on barnesandnoble.com. You can find them on booksamillion.com. You can also go to my website, www.jasonrlady.com. I have links to buy them through there as well. So yeah, really anywhere that you would go to normally find a book, uh, you can find either one of them, Monster Problems or Super Problems. And the nice thing about the name Jason Lady is that my name is distinct, as you can see. (laughs) And uh, you can find me. I don't think there's any other like authors named Jason Lady you're going to mix me up with. (laughs) Not at all. That is fantastic. And good luck with the continued efforts on these books. And I hope for us all success for the third one, man. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I have to kind of pinch myself some days. I can't believe I have a third book coming out. (laughs) It's incredible. I worked on getting published for 13 years until the first book got published. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That is some perseverance, buddy. Talk about a long grind, right? Yeah, nothing I ever do is a short sprint. It's always a long distance run. Always. You know, I wish it was over quicker, but it never is. <laughs> so it's <laughs> just how it is. But you know, it, it's cool to have a third book coming out. You're right. Like to be at this point is, is just amazing. I can't quite believe it some days. Well, congratulations. And speaking of being in it for the long haul, we're already pretty far into this. So we should probably talk about this comic. What do you think? I think that's a good idea. This is a JLI podcast. We should probably <laughs> talk more about JLI and this issue in particular, right? Seems like a good plan to me. Maybe we should, yeah. <laughs> so, folks, this is Justice League Europe number 19, published by DC Comics, cover dated October 1990, on the shelves September 4th, 1990. Cover price is $1, four shiny quarters, and the cover is by Bart Sears and Bruce Patterson. Jason, you want to describe the cover to us? Yeah, definitely. Uh, first off, I'll talk about, I still remember my reaction to this cover, buying it back mm. in the day, uh, way back in uh, 1990, I believe, when this came out. I think I was uh, in seventh or eighth grade when this came out, and going to the store, seeing this cover sitting there after, you know, five parts of Extremist Vector, where the heroes have been kicked around, people are getting killed, the world is being held hostage. It was so cool to see this cover with the heroes triumphant on the cover and uh, looking like they are ready to kick some butt. So the cover has Captain Adam first and foremost and the rest of the team uh, standing on top of what looks like a cliff or maybe a pile of rubble. And they're kind of looking down at the extremists. The extremists are in the foreground looking up at the JLE and it has a blue background, which makes me think of like uh, the blue sky.
guy, um, after a pretty grim story, you could tell that this was going to be uh, the moment of triumph for the heroes. They're really going to be coming back, is what the uh, blue background kind of uh, made me think about. And Captain Adam is pointing down dramatically at the extremists, one of his fists crackling with energy, the other uh, hand pointing down at the villains. And there are a couple word balloons on here. You took our world from us, extremists, Captain Adam is saying. Now we're taking it back. <laughs> <laughs> I love a word balloon on a cover. I am such Absolutely. a sucker for them. I can't help it's it. It's a lost art. It really mm-hmm. is. And the extremists are, like I said, they're in the foreground and they're looking up at the uh, heroes. And yeah, they're looking pretty freaked out. They're kind of like, oh, no, here we go. I think we're about to, uh, you know, get our butts handed to us is a kind of expressions on their face. So two things uh, that I noticed about this cover. And so (laughs) I did. So the first thing I did the shag maneuver where I've owned this comic for years and years and years. And I never noticed the fact that this is from Dream Slayer's point of view. Mm-hmm. This, um, it's so cool. His hands are in the foreground, like the closest thing to the, the camera, quote unquote. And you're like looking through his eyes at what's going on. Could be a subtle hint at what's to come in this story. I don't know. Kind of putting the focus on him. That's pretty cool touch. I, I like that as well. And by the way, Chris Franklin, that was Jason who said he noticed it for the first time. Not me, not me. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I, I love that bit. Uh, the Dream Slayer perspective adds a lot to it. It really does. I, I will say though, like the Extremists, I feel like they, they're, you, you describe them as you know looking up at the JLI, but they're they're almost like they were facing the other way and are caught by surprise. I mean, like you know, Tracer's got to look like you know on yeah. his face, <laughs> and then your Gorgon's kind of the same. And uh, I don't like I love the JLE; they look amazing as far as just like their confidence. I love that aspect of it. Uh, the extremists cowering and caught by surprise. I don't know; something doesn't feel quite right about that to me. I, I'm fine with them being caught by surprise, but just I guess maybe it's Tracer's eyes that are really doing it for me. <laughs> but when you look at this cover, and you can see it as a mirror image of the start of the story, the cover for issue 15 has, the, it's a flip. It's flipped. It has the extremist uh, kind of in a position of power, coming out of the portal, running at the camera, and the JLE is in the foreground. So this is almost like the mirror image of that. Mm. And you're right. It's not really totally a mirror image, because one, the JLE is not aggressively charging. They're just standing there. And the heroes on the cover of issue 15 in the foreground, they look a little more like kind of ready for action, like preparing themselves mm-hmm. and you're right the extremists kind of look like they're in the middle of playing you know a poker game or something and like <laughs> what jle huh where'd they come from <laughs> which is fair because in the issue they are caught honestly flat-footed and they are surprised yeah. so i guess that's fair now i i do like this cover i want to say that before i, I got a couple negative things to say but before i say that i do want to say i like the cover i think it's one of the best ones of the uh, extremist vector uh <laughs> the heroes in that triumph pose up there on i don't know pride rock or wherever they are it looks <laughs> it's really imposing i captain adam just looks totally boss like he is ready to kick all the ass. I mean, I love this. This looks great. Uh, The only criticisms I have are, um, it's about the inking and the coloring. The inking specifically, Patterson is just not my favorite inker for Sears. I feel like you lose some of the detail. Like, I wish they had gotten uh, Randy Elliott to do the inking or something, but like, or even Art Nichols or whatever, but like, Power Girl's face, you you just kind of lose some of the definition. Rocket Red shininess isn't there. Metamorpho just looks off. I can't explain. He's got like, Sears' width and sort of muscles, but it just looks yeah. kind of off. I can't quite. So I just, it, it's not bad. I mean, the, the extremists look great. I just feel like, and, and Captain Adam looks great. I just feel like Patterson isn't 
isn't always necessarily the best inker for Sears. Mm -hmm. Yeah, someone with a thicker line on his artwork is definitely better. And I think uh, I noticed that about the artwork inside the issue, too. I think I like the inkers earlier in JLE um, on Sears better than the ones we got later, uh, for the reasons you're saying. And then uh, the coloring side of it is, and I don't know, there's a long history of, of coloring mistakes on, on the covers of JLE comics. Like for several issues in a row, they got Power Girl sleeves wrong. Well, they got them right yes. here. Uh, now, inside, to be fair, they mess up and make her look half naked. But um, but Blue Jay, it looks shirtless, is what, yeah. they, what it looks like here. And then they got Captain Adam's boots wrong. Oh, yeah, his They're boots supposed are supposed to be blue. I yeah. never thought about that. So yeah. I, I don't know why that continues. I mean, I realize they got to do the cover far in advance of the issue uh, for solicitation purposes. Like, I, I get that. But still, you'd think you'd get it right. But either way, uh, those small nitpicks aside, it still is a great-looking cover. Again, Captain Adam looks like a total boss. It's uh, you, You're right. You, you feel that triumphant, like, whew, finally, the good guys are going to get the upper hand. Yeah, I think that uh, one other thing I'd throw in about a nitpick about this is – um, some of the figures are a little small in terms of the JLE. Mm -hmm. Elongated man is kind of way in the background off to the side. And Flash is just minuscule. He's teeny tiny. And I get that's a matter of perspective. And that's why. But Flash is probably like the most recognizable character to like the wider mainstream audience. You know, especially if you look inside this issue and see that his TV show was starting, the 1990 yep. Flash show. And it's like, you're making Flash like the smallest guy on the cover. Wouldn't you want him to be a little more prominent? Just a thought I had like looking at this. No, that's fair. Actually, now that I look at the Flash, it's kind of funny because like everyone else is like, we're going to kick your butt, extremist. And Flash literally has like a, a cheesy grin and he's like waving. Like, hi. Kind of, like the, kind of the Queen of England wave, it looks yeah. like. Yeah. A jaunty little, hi, hi, everyone. Exactly. <laughs> he doesn't look heroic. Yeah. I'll give you that. Flash doesn't fit. Yeah, that's very fair. <laughs> Good to see Crimson Fox front and center, though. She never gets a spotlight on covers. Mm -hmm. uh, hardly ever. And so she is right there behind Captain Adam crouching and, you know, ready to jump in and, you know, Tear some extremists apart. So that's but good to see. Is she really there? Hmm. Ah, very true. What do you mean by that, Shaq? Foreshadowing for the inside, folks. Well, let's get <laughs> let's get to that. So plot and breakdowns is by Keith Giffen, and you can definitely tell Keith did the breakdowns because there are some nine panel grids in here. Script is by Gerard Jones. Penciler is Bart Sears. Inkers Randy Elliott. Letters Bob LePan. Colors is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor Kevin Dooley. Editor is Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called The Extremist Vector Part Five: Pushing the Button. You want to start us off with a recap? Sure thing. I'll recap uh, the first half of the issue here. The splash page with the title Pushing the Button, Extremist Vector Part 5. The splash page opens us up with a silhouetted form of the mystery man that we saw emerging from suspended animation at the end of the last issue. He turns out to be an elderly man who kind of looks like a cross between Colonel Sanders and Christopher <laughs> Lee when you really think about it. That's very fair. That is very fair. I didn't think that when I was a kid, but I thought it now with uh, hindsight. <laughs> but uh, he's confused. He's asking what's going on, Silver Sorceress recognizes him. The old man is Mitch Wacky. He's the creator of Wacky World, and he's a children's entertainment icon on Silver Sorceress's world, on the world of Angkor. He's been long thought dead, but he'd actually put himself into suspended animation until a cure could be found for his illness. Uncle Mitch is very sick. He's coughing, he's hacking. It turns out he's dying of the flu, which luckily can be cured on the JLE's world, i.e. our world. Uh, Silver Sorceress tearfully gets Uncle Mitch brought up to date on what's happened to their world. 
Uncle Mitch's library computers fill him in on the rest of the details. He's, of course, horrified to awaken to all of this, his world devastated by nuclear war and society and uh, civilization just being laid to rubble and no one left alive. Captain Adams sees a picture of the extremists on Mitch's computer, and he notices a curious detail. Carney, who's the robot running Wacky World, who we met in earlier issues, is pictured hanging out with the extremists. Cap wonders, rightfully so, why an amusement park robot was palling around with the extremists. He begins wondering if the extremists themselves are robots too. Mitch powers up Carney's decapitated head, and Carney tells the shocking truth. The extremists really are robots. The real villains died along with everyone else. The amusement park robots, still functioning and not knowing what else to do, kept Wacky World in working order, hopeful for a day where people would return to the park. They invented a new attraction that featured assembler and extremist robots. Assemblers, of course, being the Avengers analogs on that world, the good guys, and they would reenact their old battles. The problem is they did their job too well. The extremist robots were just as wicked and evil as the real ones, (laughs) and they destroyed the assembler robots. Great job, guys. And they left. (laughs) Right. They left the park, leaving Carney behind because he has no powers. Flash finds in the park a robot junkyard, all the hero and villain robots, except the extremists. All this gives Cap an idea how to beat the extremists. As the heroes depart the junkyard room, a panel shows a Dream Slayer robot among the broken machines. Hmm. (gasps) Supposed to be extremist robots. They're all on our world. Yeah, what's up with that? Back on Earth, the United Nations has surrendered to the extremists with the hope that this at least delays the villains while a way is figured out to remove the threat of nuclear weapons. The extremists keep their word and return the missiles to their silos, but they note they can still detonate them if they encounter the slightest resistance. Back on Angor, Cap has reminded Mitch that, as the creator of the Wacky World robots, Mitch can shut the robots down. And Mitch can with a push of one button on a small handheld device. He just has to get close enough to the extremists to do it. Thanks to the now-recovered Silver Sorceress, the JLE returned to Earth and the Paris Embassy. All right, I'll take it from here. So back on the Earth of the Justice League, they urgently bring in Dr. Light, Kimio Hoshi, to provide medical assistance for Uncle Mitch. And after stabilizing Mitch and developing a strategy, the League strikes back and ambushes the extremists in their headquarters in Israel. The extremists are caught completely off guard, like the cover suggests, and the League quickly get the upper hand, keeping each extremist member overwhelmed and on the defensive. Then, to the shock of the extremist robots, Uncle Mitch appears! Lord Havoc, Tracer, Gorgon, and Dr. Diehard immediately bow and kneel, asking of their creator, quote, Are we wacky enough for you? Are we happy enough for you? End quote. Mitch declares them as naughty and deactivates the extremist robots. Hooray! The bad guys are defeated and it's only page 17. Oh, well, that's the end. What? Is that too easy? All right, just a bit. So, uh, page 17. To the surprise of everyone, Dream Slayer is still standing and blasts Uncle Mitch. Turns out that this is the real Dream Slayer, not a robot. What? All those years ago, when the atomic blast detonated on Angor, the real Dream Slayer was hurled into another dimension. He made his way back to Angor after five years, only to find that the world was destroyed. So he took the wacky world extremist robots, recruited them to help him conquer other worlds. So at this point, Dreamslayer is furious with the League for taking out his robot companions. So this creepy, no-faced evil sorcerer unleashes blasts of deadly magical energy all across a couple of really cool panels full of concentric circles, and then the League dies on page 19. Oh, well, that's the end. What? Again? All right, I guess, I guess it didn't happen exactly like that. Not exactly. Because thankfully, Crimson Fox, yes, I said thankfully Crimson Fox, believe it or not. Crimson Fox is there to absorb all 
all of the explosive evil magic energy and blast it right back at Dream Slayer, destroying him. Yes, the magic-wielding Crimson Fox has saved the day. What? Exactly. Well, until it's revealed that it's actually Silver Sorceress in disguise as the Crimson Fox. So Silver Sorceress finally got her revenge on Dream Slayer for destroying her world. On the final page, we see Wally West and Catherine Colbert visiting Madame Clouseau's Wax Museum, where the extremist robots are now on display. Which, by the way, that's got me thinking. If those are metal robots, isn't that kind of false advertising for a wax museum? But anyway, that's regardless of that. So the issue ends with the extremists in the museum, and all ends well. Next issue, The Beef Eater Strikes. All right, man. So there is a lot to unpack. Five long issues, and this is the big conclusion. What did you think? You know, overall, I liked it. I remember uh, back when I first read it, really enjoying this conclusion. And in particular, and we can get more into it a little later, I think, but the multiple twist endings Mm -hmm. to this. You don't get that very often, really, in any story. You might have one twist, and that's about it. And this does a pretty masterful job of uh, kind of compounding twist on twist and just leaving you guessing and wondering what's going to happen next. So I remember really enjoying that. Looking at the art first, I have a few art notes. Page three and Mm -hmm. panel two. And you've got the JLE kind of going into Mitch Wacky's office. He's gone in there to consult with his computer to see what's happened uh, to the world uh, while he's been in suspended animation. And you've got Ralph uh, over in the corner remarking, this is the office of an amusement park? But you don't really see much of the office in this panel. You have a vague impression of a computer panel that uh, Mitch Wacky's at, but you don't really get what Ralph is talking about. The art doesn't really sell that dialogue, you know? And in addition to that, uh, Mitch Wacky is supposed to be looking information on the screen he's reacting despondently he's like oh no oh no this man is in despair but the screen is blank (laughs) so i hate to start off with like a nitpick but i'm just noticing this and i was like hey wait a minute you could have showed us a little more there (laughs) yeah i think that's the coloring let down i think the pencils are there i mean it's a pretty fancy place you can see bart's really put the shine on the everything and the equipment but the coloring just went generic background colors flat orange and yellow so I, i feel like that's kind of where the letdown is yeah maybe that's what it is maybe we're supposed to get a little more grandeur and the the color could have helped with that because you're right bart sears is a master of shiny metal Mm -hmm. and uh, he sells that with that floor you could tell that floor is just those robots have kept it nice and uh, waxed (laughs) over the years (laughs) not a lot of dust is connected there so another art note is right below that uh you're looking at page three panel five and this this very well could be me just not understanding you know that's very likely actually i'm I'm a little uh, a little slow but (laughs) (laughs) this panel where cap is uh pointing at the uh, picture of Carney on the screen. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Cap's dialogue is, that's the creature that called itself Carney, but he was a robot. I think what we're meant to be picking up there is that Carney's in a picture with the extremists. You can see Tracer's torso right behind Carney, mm-hmm. but it's cropped so you don't see anybody else. And you know, we're not getting that eureka moment. Like, what's Carney doing hanging out with the extremists? I think we're supposed to get that from that panel, mm. and we're not. It's mostly just Carney, you know, taking up the whole panel. That makes sense. That's a good point. I can see where that would that would help sell it. You're right. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's another one where I'm like, I don't know if they meant to do that to kind of keep keep the reader in suspense. Like, what's Cap noticing? But maybe uh, maybe that's how it was meant to be. Now, for a positive thing with the art, because the art is really good in this overall. I don't mean to uh, start out with a bunch of nitpicks on Mister Sears. Um, looking 
looking at the uh, Flash holding uh, the disembodied head of Carney on the bottom of page three in the middle panel. And then uh, later on, I think it's page five, panel one, they've got Carney's head uh, hooked up to some wires and some cables and stuff. I love the visual of like his tongue sticking out. Like it's a very right. cartoon character, kind of bonked over the head kind of expression. <laughs> <laughs> now, before you go too far, like, I want to go back one page uh, for, an art, for an art acknowledgement. On page two, uh, the seventh panel, it's on the bottom. It's, it's Mitch in shock is what it is. But I really enjoy the way Sears laid this out because you've got Mitch in the foreground is shocked, but behind him is like an echo of the shocked expression in the background. It's you know obviously not really happening in real life, but it's just to demonstrate to the reader the shocked response by Mitch. And I just felt like that was really effective. It works even better, by the way, because I read this digitally in panel-by-panel panel mode. And in panel-by-panel panel mode, that, pa- that whole panel just looks great with that shocked look by Mitch, and it really conveys the emotion of it. So I, I kind of dug that. Yeah, you're right. And that's the kind of thing you can only get away with in comics, right? In the, mm-hmm. this medium of comics, you can do those kind of surreal kinds of touches to get across the emotion. Exactly. Uh, looking at page nine and the bottom panel, this is an awesome portrait by Bart Sears of the team. Yes. It's the bottom of the page. The Flash is saying, then, what the bleep are we waiting for? And Captain Adam says, nothing. Let's go. This is a great panel of the JLE. Like, they look determined. They look tough. They're going to go back and kick some butt. And I think in particular, that's a great portrait of the Silver Sorceress right there in the corner. Uh, She's got her hand extended towards uh, the camera, so to speak. She's got the magical kind of light flaring around her hand. And she just looks like, just looks determined and really cool there. And she's not a character that looks uh, really cool very often because she's (laughs) a silly uh, helmet that she wears. But Sears really sells it right there. So kudos to him for that. So I'm glad you brought up that page. I did want to talk about something on there. First off, look at the panel right above it and the panel right below it. The two images of the Silver Sorceress. You know, the one where she's making the cowl appear and then she's getting the cloak on and stuff like that. But is it just me or does Silver Sorceress look completely different? Like a completely different person with her cowl on and her cowl off? Because like once the hair gets hidden and then if you look at her eyes in the panel above and the panel below. I mean, they look completely different. Maybe she magically made her eye makeup here. I don't know. But like her eyes look completely different. She she looks like a completely different person. It kind of shows the power of someone's hair color and hairstyle, right? Like, <laughs> like they are. You know, someone puts a hat on, you know, you can not recognize your best friend in public sometimes depending on, you know, what they've done with their hair or if they're wearing a hat or a hood or something like that. I've kind of wondered how she stuffs all her hair under that. But then I have a friend who she has a ton of like the giant, you know, uh, collection of curly hair and she makes manages to put it up in a bun sometimes, a little tiny bun. I'm like, that's a superpower to be able to do that. So <laughs> I think that Silver Sorceress' uh, magical abilities <laughs> must be coming into play here. That's fair. That is absolutely fair. Uh, I'll also say, is Silver Sorceress without her cowl and everything, when she's, uh, in the first half of the issue, she's just, her hair's out, her costume's out, uh, and, and bedraggled, and is just wearing the, without the cowl and the, and the cape. But I have to say, I'm legally obligated to say she's smoking hot. But anyway, um, <laughs> She looks, her costume without the cowl and the cape looks a lot like Fury from the Young All-Stars, actually. Quite a bit like Fury from the Young All-Stars. I don't know if you ever read that book or not, but there's a um, lot I did. of... I know who you're talking about. Yeah. A lot of similarity there. And then I, I will just say, I, as far as that character goes, I am very interested to see where they go with Silver Sorceress, because at this point, she doesn't really have much of a personality. Mm-hmm. She's a set of powers. She is a victim for a while there, and then she wants revenge, but there's no personality. So I'm very interested to see how her personality develops and how that's going to fit in with the other female 
female members like Power Girl and Crimson Fox who have very uh, specific personalities. So looking forward to fi- seeing that develop. You're absolutely right. And uh, the same thing with Blue Jay. I believe he sticks around after this too. Mm-hmm. And those two are great JLI characters. You know, I think that Giffen and Matias had a gift for taking these characters that were either very underdeveloped or just blank slates entirely like these two and uh, doing things with them. So yeah, I'm intrigued to kind of reread these as we go too and see what happens with the two of them. Yeah. Um, looking at, you know, you noted this on pages 19 and 20, the magical special effects there, uh, so to speak, with the concentric circles. This is a Dream Slayer trying to blast the team and then Silver Sorceress in disguise as Crimson Fox, putting up a shield and like reflecting it, gathering the magic, reflecting it back at him. There's just some really cool effects here that again, you know, a comic book can really help sell. And at the bottom of page 22, you, and I think carrying on to the next page, you see Dream Slayer's a skeleton, almost like an x-ray through his body. That's a cool effect that uh, Sears put in there to kind of sell the fact that, yeah, he's being ripped apart. It's interesting, though, they kind of play a coy with his head. His head's a glowing ball of energy for people that don't know this character, and it's a mystery if he really has a face under there or not. They don't show a skull. There's no skull there, um, but it's kind of hidden by smoke and stuff, so it's like maybe there is. I don't know. So I'm going to blow your mind here. So this is actually we've seen his skeleton in a previous issue as well. Uh, Yep. And then just flip back one page. On page 19, when he's doing all those amazing blasts of the concentric circles, you can see a skeleton there too. So it's not just when he's taking damage, it's also when he's dishing it out. I never noticed that. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that really sells like how much power he's bringing to the fore there. You know, like you can actually see his skeleton through his body. Right. <laughs> well, page 19, it's just absolutely stunning. The blast, the the energy going on, the, the concentric circles, which are done in what you call color hold, which means there's no black lines around them. It's just pink, bright pink circles. Uh, it's just a stunning, stunning page. It looks absolutely fantastic. And it's two huge panels, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like a bunch of little panels. These are two giant panels on one page, really selling the fact that there's something big happening here. This guy's gathering all his strength together, and he's trying to annihilate them. Exactly. So I got a couple art notes before we move on to story. Page four, I love the way Bart Sears draws Martian Manhunter. He just looks so boss. Uh, I love the, like that huge brow, like the eyebrow he gives Martian Manhunter. Just looks great. I remember seeing that invasion. I love it here. I, it, I just really dig the way he draws Martian Manhunter. He looks massive. He, he, he completely enshrouds him in the cape so you don't have to see the muscles. So he doesn't mm-hmm. look like a big straw man. He just looks imposing. I think he looks great. He's like two feet taller than Max Lord standing next to him. Mm-hmm. You're right. It sells the fact that he is mighty. He's a yeah. mighty alien. Absolutely. Yep. On the page after that, I feel like the story took kind of an unexpected turn. Because uh, <laughs> I like that I like that the kids found Mitch Wacky in the chimpanzee on the boat. But it was a little weird. And then they all got a chance to enjoy some Capri Sun at the end of that page. I just felt like, you know, that was nice. But a little unusual. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> Who doesn't love a little Capri Sun? I mean, honestly. Right. Exactly. So I think this is probably a ride at Wacky World. You know, you get on the ride. And you go up to the boat and you get your Capri Sun and you meet the chimpanzee. I mean, why not? It is, it's no hostess ad, but it still threw me off. It still threw me off. Because uh, the guy looks like Mitch Wacky, which is a crazy thing. So I anyway. never noticed that, Shag. You're right. I never really picked up on that. But yeah, he kind of has that <laughs> Colonel Sanders uh, kindly old man vibe going. <laughs> exactly. So then on page seven, the mass grave for the robot duplicates. First of all, it's in this like football stadium sized room, which is kind of weird. I don't know what was going on, supposed to happen in that room. But anyway, the mass grave for all the robot duplicates of all the heroes and villains of Angor, that's a lot of characters. I mean, a lot, a lot of characters are there. So is that supposed to represent the entire official handbook of the Angor universe or something there? I mean, like, 
that is a lot of people that are robots that are dead. <laughs> right. I mean, that's more characters than I think all the comic companies combined, even if you threw in Fawcett and Charlton, right. Ar- Archie and all the others, you know? Yeah, I didn't pick up on the fact for a long time that all that orange stuff is actually more robot bodies. I thought that just that gray pile was the robot bodies. And I kind of wonder why it was this huge room with a little pile in it. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's meant to represent, you know, thousands, millions. Yeah. Exactly. The only thing I can think of is that they have duplicates of some people. That's there all must be. Think. Yeah, that must be. That must be it. <laughs> there got to be. Otherwise, the superheroes outnumbered the regular people. Right. Well, why don't we why don't we get into your story notes? Sure thing. So on uh, page four, you know, a few issues back, uh, in issue 17, there was a big mystery about who this guy at the UN was. It seemed like it was Max. They never said it was Max. It kind of, you know, seemed like he was trying to use Max Lord's powers and it didn't work and the extremists zapped him. This seems to confirm that this is Max because uh, they identify him. He's talking to Martian Manhunter. This is our guy, Max Lord. But there's no mention of him getting zapped. Like, you know, we're glad you're doing better, Max, or you're recovering from, you know, being struck down. Nothing. So that just makes seven. You know, that little bit in 17, even weirder. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't identify Max. That's a little thing, though. Story note on page five, uh, elongated man makes a Donovan's brain joke. And now in 2021, I have the internet and resources to actually look up what that means. And um, I had to look it up. And I actually did that. I've been too lazy to do so until this, you know, until this past week. And, you know, learned, uh, I don't know if you know about that movie, Shaq. It's actually a movie. I had to do the same thing. <laughs> I read this issue. I'm like, I have no idea what that reference is. I had to Google it as well. <laughs> When Elongated Man says, you know, I would make the joke, but no one would get it. You're right, Elongated Man. You're right, Ralph. (laughs) No one would get it because no one knows what you're talking about. Even 30 years later, no one knew it. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. Yep. I have a story note on page six. Uh, you think there'd be a little more of a reaction from the JLE. There's this revelation the extremists have been robots all along. You think they'd be kind of like, the guys who killed all those people and caused all that destruction, held the world hostage, you know, kicked our butt, banished us here. They're robots. You don't really get that kind of like, what? You know, kind mm-hmm. of. They're just, they're just kind of like, okay, let's go get them. You know, it's kind of what happens. You don't get that disbelief. And I think it would have been cool to see that, uh, especially from some of the personalities like Flash and Power Girl. You know, it would have been cool to see their reaction to that. You don't really get that. Like, I would imagine a metamorpho line like, I got my butt handed to me by Robbie the robot? You know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the dialogue you expect to see. And yeah, them just being like, you got to be kidding me. And uh, yeah, no, it, it's not there. I noticed this uh, in my story recap, but uh, yeah, bottom of page seven, that little bit of uh, foreshadowing with the Dream Slayer robot. It's not remarked upon. No one notices it, but it's there for the reader to see. And they pick up on that later. And that is so cool. I think that's one of the best touches in this issue. Oh, really fantastic foreshadowing. Absolutely. Um, on page 12, <laughs> this is something I really only noticed uh, with this read through. You know, you read things a little more closely and you're thinking about it a little more. But on page 12, so the extremists have basically taken over the world. The nations of the world have surrendered to them. And what are they doing? They're sitting around like eating donuts. I mean, I got to be honest with you, Shag. If I ruled the world, that's probably what I would do. I would sit around <laughs> and eat donuts. <laughs> no other expectations on my time. You know? Right, that's right. Probably what I would do. But these are super villains. I wonder if this is a sign, though, that they're programming is just so limited you know they're programmed to kind of be the bad guys take the world over they have no imagination you know to know what to do next so they're just kind of hanging out but yeah that's a little odd i mean and and gorgon is literally eating donuts he's got a mm-hmm. box of donuts there 
with like, you know, a Boston cream donut in there, it looks like, and a bottle of soda, and he's just chowing down. You, you make a good point about that. And uh, uh, to keeping true to their programming, they're immediately thinking about not trusting the humans and destroying their world anyway. They're like, they're like okay, they've surrendered, but it's too easy. So yeah, I, 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 that could definitely be something in with their programming. So I got a comment about the whole world surrendering thing. And here's the problem with a shared universe and these like big world shattering threats every summer. If the Earth can beat back an entire alien invasion two years ago, invading Asian invasion and occupation, it yeah. should be able to beat back five supervillains and not surrender the planet. I mean, wouldn't Batman have a plan to overcome like uh, Doctor Diehard by using I don't know Doctor Polaris and Francis Kane or something to take control of the atomic missiles? It's it just seems weird that everyone on the planet just goes, oh well. I guess we surrender. That's that. Uh, so, again, it's it works perfectly fine in the context of these issues. And that's all we should really care about. So I'm thinking too big picture here. But it, it is sort of hard in a shared universe to accept that fate. And this is something that comes up over and over again, right? With a whether you're looking at one team, you're looking at a solo character's book, where you're kind of like, hey, why don't, you know, X hero, whatever hero that is, you know, or team, come and help? You know, how come everybody isn't ganging up on this? Why there's only some crises where they do and some they don't? And yeah, there's a, not that there isn't already a lot of suspension of, of disbelief with comics, but uh, there's definitely some suspension of disbelief with that. Where I even remember my dad at the time uh, when we read this, you know, his whole extremist story and him remarking on, you know, how come they don't call in Superman? He's involved. Vulnerable. Why don't they call him Green Lantern? He's got the Green Lantern force fields, you know, that he can make with his ring. And there's just a lot of really powerful heroes out there that could probably come in and you would think take these guys down, you know, and that's just not happening. Yeah, or, or come up with a plan to stop the missiles from falling and then take them out. You know, some, something that would have worked. But again, suspension, disbelief, you roll with it. It makes for a fun story. But you just because they keep cutting back to the other world aspects, like we see the UN, we saw Superman, we saw Batman in the previous issues. It's like it's hard to not think about it when they put them in the comic yeah and it, it definitely makes the jle front and center which you need to do in their own book but yeah because they keep going back to the un and showing the martian manhunter you, you start to think about the wider dc universe and how big a threat this is it might have been you know this muscle might be an artifact of this becoming a five-part story from a three-part story i think it was supposed mm. to be and so you know maybe if the crisis was happening quicker then you wouldn't have all that time for the other people of the earth to take notice you know what i mean yeah good point yeah and the jle just stops it in the bud before it gets uh, as bad as it did now let's see so on page 13 another story note and you know i think about all the comics i've read where the heroes realize their enemies that look like people are actually robots and i think about you know i think there was an x-men story at one point where they're just like oh we could cut loose they're robots you know that happens over and over again where they're mm -hmm. kind of uh holding back because they don't want to kill or you know severely injure somebody but then they realize it's actually a robot and they're like okay gloves are off now you know wolverine is carving the robot up cyclops is blowing it away <laughs> you know <laughs> superman might be smashing it you know captain adam does this incredible energy blast on um, page 13 i kind of wonder why he just didn't vaporize them and but then that begs the question was he really holding back before trying not to kill them or were they doing their best you know maybe the jle was trying to use lethal force here you know in the previous battles and uh you know it just wasn't working because these guys are just that tough that makes a great point and, and along those same lines oh, well, oh by the way i also remember all those times in the x-men were like we can cut loose and wolverine suddenly starts slicing everything to pieces like like we right. wanted to see him do as a kid anyway uh, yeah exactly <laughs> but <laughs> oh, I, along that same lines of when they attack the extremists so like 
I, first of all, I do like that the league has finally learned that the way to beat the extremists is to keep each villain overwhelmed individually and on the defensive. That's absolutely the way to beat them. I like that you see it here. However, if Dr. Diehard is the most dangerous of them all, because he controls all the missiles, right? That that's what they're worried about. Are Elongated Man and Blue Jay really the guys you assign to Dr. Diehard in like a man-to-man <laughs> coverage? It just doesn't, that doesn't track. Right. I think you have Power Girl, Captain Adam, and Rocket Red team up, honestly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Dr. Diehard. <laughs> well, Dream, it seems like Dream Slayer and Dr. Diehard are the two you really got to worry about. Maybe maybe ha- Lord Havoc. But, I mean, those are the ones you really only need to worry about. So, why? yeah, why is Power Girl taking out Gorgon? Really? I don't think so. Yeah, that, that's a mismatch right there. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You're yeah. right about that. <laughs> so, on uh, page 12, uh, panel 14, and page 13, panel 3. Interesting clues here. Again, they do some foreshadowing. Crimson Fox is not acting like herself she's usually that kind of nightcrawler spider-man-like character that's always like crouching and jumping and leaping and climbing walls and stuff and she's just kind of standing there in both panels and i think at the time reading this as a new reader i did not notice that at all i don't know i didn't pick up on it i didn't even think that was weird for some reason maybe i was just used to her being in the background but it's foreshadowing for what is to come that is actually silver sorceress in disguise and does not have those same abilities as crimson fox i didn't pick up on that until i read your notes i like i mean i knew she was obviously uh silver sorceress at some point but i did i wasn't watching her to watch to see that she was behaving out of character and part of that's because they don't ever do anything with crimson fox so i i think i i wasn't surprised by that yeah it's probably why i didn't notice it either and i'm i'm very happy to have helped you uh, notice something i'm proud of <laughs> this gives me a little bit of a boost for the rest of the month here there you go take your small <laughs> victories where you can get them exactly. so here's the thought so if silver sorceress is disguised as crimson fox right throughout this whole battle that means they left Crimson Fox out of the fight entirely. Like, she wasn't worthy to bring to the fight. They, I guess they just left her at the embassy? I don't know. Tell her to go run her, her makeup company? I don't know. But, like, couldn't they have brought Crimson Fox and Silver Sorceress just disguise herself as someone else? I mean, like, maybe one of the surviving Rocket Reds or Wangina or another Assembler or even someone from the JLA. Like, Martian Manhunter was already in this issue, so it wouldn't have been out of place to see him. Now, I totally get from a storytelling perspective why they didn't want to spoil the surprise. But if Martian Manhunter had been there in the battle, we wouldn't have thought twice about it or something like that. But anyway, I just feel bad because poor uh, poor Crimson Fox is just sitting back at the embassy, probably like twiddling her thumbs, angry she couldn't go. Yeah, you're kind of wondering, like, what is she doing during this battle? <laughs> you right. know, she's been through this whole crossover with the team and getting as angry and frustrated as the rest of them. And, you know, yeah, you're right. She must just be like, you know, at a cafe somewhere or something. I don't know uh, where she is. That would be nice if she had popped in. No, you're yeah. absolutely right about that. They, they could have used her to take out Tracer. I mean, that's like the perfect one-to-one parry she would have been perfect for that right right and then you don't have all the you don't have rocket red wasting his time on trace on tracer exactly know? exactly <laughs> which interesting note about that uh this is something i thought about i think in the past couple of days tracer i think thinks to himself at one point during this battle you know i'm going to open up that tin can and kill him it's like this isn't the same rocket red armor that dimitri has on that all those other guys had on you know dimitri mm-hmm. has the apocalypse armor i really wonder if tracer would have been in for a shock that uh, it wouldn't have worked <laughs> that's <laughs> Maybe, a good point good Maybe could have damaged him. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, so pages 19 and 20. The, yeah, this is probably one of the coolest parts of this whole story. And that is just the the twist upon twist that we mentioned earlier. Dream Slayer is not a robot. What? Crimson Fox is really the Silver Sorceress. What? And then the earlier twist of the extremists are robots, you know, to begin with. Uh, this blew my mind back in the day. I think that was a just, just great plotting. And as much as uh, we've noticed that this series had a lot of padding, 
landing, a lot of stretching out. They did a good job sticking the landing with all these twists at the end to really uh, amp up the drama and really just leave you, uh, you know, reeling. Just like, whoa, what's going to happen next? I think that if a comic can do that, any story can do that. It really, it, you know, it's really great for the uh, for the reader or the viewer. And as someone who uh, writes books, you know, I, I really admire that, that they not only just threw in one twist, they had twist upon twist. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think of the five issues, this is probably the most standout part, not just because they win, but just because so much happens. Uh, there's a lot of, as you said, twists and turns. There's a lot of reveals. There's a lot of great action. So I feel like this issue wins of the five issue run uh, as far as being the most well put together issue and really exciting and yet, like shocking, really is shocking in a lot of ways. Does the unexpected. Yeah, mm-hmm. you kind of want that. You don't want it to be too predictable because then that just gets boring, right? Um, if you uh, know what's going to happen, or you can kind of really predict what's going to happen. And with this, you, you really don't. And uh, yeah, kudos to them for doing that. Um, so page 22, this is our last page of the, of the comic. And with this, I really noticed this even back in the day that I first read this. And I remember my, uh, my dad complaining about it too. So for all the padding, this story had all the stretching out, it had, it really just kind of ends abruptly. It's kind of like, boom, you know, this one page you know, after the battle's <laughs> over. And it's Wally and Catherine of all people, you know, that we close the story out with. And I don't know, like, why these two? It's a weird pairing. I mean, it it seems like it just could have been anybody, you know, from the JLE or the JLE staff, you know, slotted in there. Just one page with Catherine and Wally. And I would have liked a little more time to check in on Uncle Mitch. You know, he got blown away Mm -hmm. (laughs) at one point at the end here. Uh, How is he doing? Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress, how are they? How are they reacting to the extremists and being on this world and uh, and being free of the Russian prison? You know, they've been in prison since we saw them last and they both escaped and now they're going to be uh, members of the team you know maybe a formal invitation hey you guys can stay with us and the JLE themselves reflecting on what they've been through and how they've been affected by what happened Dimitri and the massacre of the Rocket Red Brigade I don't know just a, a little more here you know to close out this is a five part story and we just kind of get this one page the Russian embassy was destroyed one of the staff members was murdered I don't even know if it was Rosa or Dana who died from the Russian uh, embassy staff I'm not really sure to be honest with you I don't know if they ever uh, showed the uh, survivor a sister again. To add to that, Moscow yes. was burning. I mean, yes. th- so who knows how many other people outside of what we saw died. Yeah, there's a major impact that you feel like there should have been some sort of, you know, even if it's a TV screen in the background talking about what we've lost or the tragedy or whatever. Yeah, it does feel like there's missing a, a, a resolution. Again, like you said, with so much padding, it seems like they could have put a couple of pages in here to, to have the wrap up where everyone's back home, like bandaging their wounds and saying, thank goodness it's over. And what have we lost? And how do we go forward? kind of thing. Yeah, if we learned anything from our experience. And really this ending too, where the robots are put on display in a wax museum. It doesn't, it didn't sit well with me back in the day. It doesn't sit well with me now. Because imagine being one of those Russian people who maybe lost somebody to these robots. And they're, mm. just being, they're just being stuck in a museum. I think that the you know Russian ambassador would be on the phone with somebody to be like, toss these things into the sun, you know, destroy them. <laughs> you know, just stick them out for the for public view. Would the public even want them on view? I think that'd be kind of traumatizing. You know, these guys held the world hostage with nuclear weapons. Weapons, you know? Right. Just some thoughts I had. Uh, all fair. All fair. Now, I, I guess if the museum has a wing of like horrors of the of the world and there's like statues of Hitler and the extremists, maybe that would explain it. But yeah, it is, it's a very strange thing to do. And from a comic book perspective, if you think, wow, we're going to keep these robots and perfectly preserve them, that's just a formula for the bad guys to come back. Yeah, very true, which does it happen or not? I don't know. We'll have to see as uh, <laughs> as the podcast goes on. So I've got just a couple more comments about the story itself. Like on Angor, they can build the most amazing lifelike animatronics where people can't even tell they're not real, and yet they have no flu vaccine. That seems a little <laughs> weird. 
maybe spend a little more time on the biological and not so much on the robots, I'm just saying. I got to tell you, the uh, it, it hits a little differently, Mitch Wacky being among the JLE and hacking and coughing and stuff in this day and age. Mm. Uh, that, that read differently uh, when I read it uh, for this podcast than it did uh, you know, 20, 30-some years ago. Just got to say that. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. So and then Uncle Mitch Wacky, so the creator of Wacky Walrus, who's obviously the fill-in for Mickey Mouse and all that. So here's the question. Did they really develop him as a character? Or are we just grafting our feelings for Walt Disney on top of this non-developed character? I've got my opinion. I'd be curious what you think. Yeah, um, you're right, because it, it's another thing of the story being stretched out, yet some things being very rushed. And I feel like his introduction kind of coming, we don't even hear about him really until uh, I don't think I don't think his men- name is mentioned at all in the previous chapters. So he kind of pops up in this story only. And I think you're right. I think there's a lot of kind of... Uh, you know, learned knowledge from the real world that we have that we, you know, transpose upon Mitch Wacky. And we're not really given a lot to go on here other than he's like Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress. He's horrified. He's traumatized of what's happened to his world. But that's about it. And I think we uh, do have to pull in our real life, you know, Disney World, you know, kind of knowledge and experiences and put it on this. Otherwise, there's not a lot given to us here. And, and, and where I'm going with this is I feel like I'm seeing a trend develop. I feel like we're seeing characters that exist with either a purpose or a power, but no distinct personalities. All the ones that are being introduced, that is, uh, in recent issues, Blue Jay, Mitch, uh, I feel like there's something missing from the script where we're supposed to learn about these characters' personalities and fall in love with them, which is what, you know, James DiMatteis would do over in Justice League America, where you Mm -hmm. you learn the distinct personalities. Like, yeah, I I can describe Fire's personality. I can describe Ice's personality. I can describe Booster and Beetle and all those characters. And that came from the scripts. And and I feel like uh, we're we're not there on this side. I, I hope we get there but we're definitely not there right now. Yeah, no, no, we're not, especially with some of these new characters or older characters that not much has been done with, like Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress. We just haven't gotten a lot there. And even the JLE members themselves you know, what differentiates, especially in this five-part story, like what differentiated, you know, Metamorpho from Flash, from Captain Adam, you know, I don't know if there was a lot to differentiate them. They kind of just ran through the plot, you know, Mm -hmm. ran through the motions. Yeah. Well, you know what, this has been a lot of fun overall. Why don't you give us some closing thoughts on the issue? Yeah, sure. So as a standalone issue, I like it. Um, The big twist, uh, the things you don't see coming, all that stuff we talked about before, uh, all these revelations, very exciting, keeps you guessing. As the final part in a five-part story, there's a lot left dangling, like we talked about. It's interesting because, you know, even at the time and even in retrospective as well, you can't help but compare this to the Despero story over in JLA. They happened around the same time. Uh, it was both, uh, both storylines were both times where in each comic it got real, right? It was pretty low stakes up until that point. And then boom, there's big stakes happening. The heroes are having to stretch themselves. Uh, they're facing serious threats. And you can't help but find this story a little lacking in, in comparison to the Despero saga. But I don't know if it's fair to compare them. I think that they had different goals. I think that this story is a little more, I think of it as a summer blockbuster. There's a lot of mm. spectacle, mm-hmm. a lot of heroes running around, explosions, you know, excitement, but there's not a lot deep there. You know, there's not a lot going on there. In the JLA story with Despero, we got all that great character, uh, you know, introspection uh, when they all thought uh, Scott Free was dead. And you got all that great introspection from Guy, and from Blue Beetle, and from Max, and from John. And it really affected the team going forward, led to a light ray and Orion joining the team and uh, led to Gypsy getting back in touch with the league. And there's just some after effects. Despero went on to be, you know, a powerful recurring enemy
enemy with a personal tie to the team, a grudge match with John. With this story, the extremists, I think by virtue of uh, being revealed to be robots, I think by not having much of a history um, in general, they're just kind of bad guys who are bad. (laughs) Um, They don't go on to make much of an impact, you know, Um, in the wider uh, DC universe. You uh, look at uh, where they popped up since and really not much. So you look at the story and it's like, yeah, it was a fun read, but, you know, I think it set out what it needed to do. It was an exciting story, but it's not one that's going to impact the characters or the wider uh, universe as a whole. Yeah, I I think you're right there. If you look at, because they're analogs of Marvel characters. We've talked about that. You look at these guys as analogs of Marvel characters and they didn't go anywhere. But you look at the Squadron Supreme, also analogs of DC characters and how they've handled to the point where they've had multiple series of their own because they were handled in such a way that it was done really, really well. So I think it's a combination of the the way they were handled here and uh, maybe the robot aspect. I'm not sure, but there's something that doesn't click with the extremist in the way the Squadron Supreme does. Yeah, yeah, no, very true. And I think that, you know, something I alluded to a moment ago with the uh, JLE fighting these guys, you know, there there isn't much there to tie them together to be enemies. It just so happened that Blue Jay escaped, went to the Russian embassy, and then Metamorpho came from the Paris embassy because they were the closest ones. And that's kind of how the JLE got wrapped up in all of this. There's not much to make the extremist JLE villains. They were kind of in need of an arch enemy. And I think they kind of had one with the Queen Bee um, at this point, but really not a whole lot of others. They could have really used a new, powerful nemesis at this point. And it's like, what makes these guys JLE villains? You could have slotted really any team into the story fighting them. You could have had the Teen Titans. You could have had the Outsiders. You could have had the Zoo Crew, you know, fighting them, (laughs) the Inferior Five, and really could slot any team in there. And it really wouldn't matter. So at the end of the day, yeah, you know, these guys um, don't have that staying power like a Despero does, where he's got that grudge match, that kind of like Khan from Star Trek, you know, kind of grudge match going. Uh, with the Martian Manhunter and the Justice League. Yeah, these guys don't have that uh, tie to the team at all. It's just kind of like this This could have been uh, any team fighting them. I think you make a good point. I think Queen Bee is probably the best villain for Justice League Europe, and I think her using the Global Guardians is the perfect mm-hmm. hook because, the, first of all, the Global Guardians can be very powerful in the right writer's hands, and they, yep. they are essentially what the Justice League Europe used to be. You know, They were the international team based out of Paris. So I think that actually works a little bit better um, than this, without a doubt. But I like your analogy of this a summer blockbuster. I mean, this is like um, this is Armageddon. This is the Armageddon of comic books. The meaning the movie, yes, because it's, Day. right. Yeah. It, it's a big summer blockbuster. It's really pretty to look at. Lots of like fist pumping action. Lots of like heck yeah moments. A lot of like you know little emotional beats here and there that you know maybe are not earned, but you go with it anyway. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, when you really sit down and break it down, which is unfortunately what we have to do on a podcast, it doesn't right. necessarily hold up. But if you just read it for fun as a popcorn movie, quote unquote, it, it works pretty well. So yeah, I, I, I think this issue is the standout of it. I think that the storyline itself is a lot of fun and there's some great moments in it. Just don't look too deep as, as I think, yeah, I think it is, is the lesson here. Yeah, I think that's really well said. You don't look for a character development here. You don't look for this to have an impact on the characters going forward. It's just a fun story. And you know what? There's room for that. You know, I don't want to, you know, come off like I'm sitting here just bashing this story because I think when you approach it with the right mindset, you know, this can be a fun, breezy read. And there's really nothing wrong with that. We need those stories too. And I'm going to say something super controversial, which is if you go back and read a lot of those beloved, and I do mean that, truly beloved satellite era Justice League stories by by my beloved Jerry Conway, and if you yeah. really break them down, they don't hold up either, folks. A lot of those oh, fights, yeah. you're like, why did that happen? Because the story needed it to. So, 
It's just the nature of comic books. You look too deep and you're going to find flaws. Anyway, I, I will say, by the way, in the letters page, I love that the audience is going back and forth in there arguing about Power Girl's new costume. Some fans love it. Some fans hate it, which is just weird because I can't imagine fans having those kinds of arguments. Uh, and thank goodness that was resolved back in 1990. And no one is arguing any further about Power Girl's uh, costume at this point. So thank goodness. Oh, never. This costume was the costume she used forevermore. And there was never controversy after that. You know, exactly. Exactly. They eventually got used to it. They got used to it. And she yeah. never had another costume that was controversial ever. <laughs> and I look forward to your comments, folks. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> that is the extremist vector, folks. Woof. What a Yay. wild roller coaster. Thank you so much, Jason, for being here with me on this. Now, folks, we are going to take a second to do something where I get to sit back and relax a little and someone else do all the heavy lifting. We're going to do what I like to call the character spotlight. This is where the guest is going to share some thoughts on one of the characters from the issue. Not really an origin recap, but more where the characters were in the DC Universe just before joining the JLI and what kind of impact the JLI had on their careers. You know, we're here on issue 19, and I think it's finally time to talk about Wally West the Flash. Jason? Absolutely, Shag. So, Wally West the Flash, born Wallace Rudolph Wally <laughs> West, a.k.a. The Flash. Yes, his middle name is Rudolph. I looked that up on Wikipedia, so you know it's true if it's on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> he first appeared in December 1959 in The Flash number 110 by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. Uh, Wally was introduced as the nephew of Barry Allen, the Silver Age Flash. Caught in a very similar lab accident that gave his uncle the gift of, of super speed, Wally finds himself with the same powers. Soon, he helps the Flash battle evil as his sidekick, Kid Flash. Wally would go on to be a founding and longtime member of the Teen Titans, a group made up of hero sidekicks like Robin and Aqualad. Tragedy strikes in issue 7 of the 1986 mega event known as Crisis on Infinite Earths when Barry Allen heroically dies, saving the universe from destruction at the hands of the Anti-Monitor, one of the great death scenes of all time. In the final issue of Crisis, Wally dons his mentor's famous red costume and he leaves Kid Flash behind, stepping into the role of the Flash. Out of the crisis aftermath, Wally is launched into a brand new Flash series by Mike Barron and Jackson Guise. Hope I said that right. Where he yeah. <laughs> tries to live up to Barry Allen's example while making his own way in the world. Wally deals with money and relationship problems, powers that for a while fluctuate and are weaker than Barry's, and the skepticism he runs into from his fellow heroes and enemies who wonder if he has what it takes to fill his famous mentor's shoes. Wally slowly matures and grows as the Flash over time, becoming one of the best examples, if not the best example, of a kid sidekick becoming a confident adult and a powerful and respected hero in their own right. After the invasion story that uh, Shag mentioned earlier, uh, Wally is invited to join the brand new branch of the Justice League, the Justice League Europe, which we're talking about, of course, right now. Though still working through his issues of being hot-headed and immature, joining the Justice League is an important step in Wally's growth and credibility in-universe and out. Wally would go on to be a founding member of other incarnations of the Justice League, but it started here, folks. Justice League Europe is where he was first in the Justice League. If someone knows differently, please let me know. But I think this is the first time Wally uh, went up to the big league, so to speak. You are correct. And for a whole generation of readers, myself included, when we think of the Flash, we think of Wally West. Wally West is my Flash from growing up. And Barry Allen would never return, and Wally would have the spotlight as the Flash forever. Right, Shag? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if only only, if only. So I gotta, I gotta mention. By the way, thank you so much for doing that. But so think about this. So Wally's been around since 1959. That is almost the beginning of the Silver Age. But it means 
since Wally's been around since almost as long as all the Silver Age characters. So yes. active for over 60 years. And Wally never stopped being active except for a very small window during the early days of the New 52 when they made a mistake and they apologized for it after about four years or so. So Wally was active that entire time, which means Wally has actually been active longer than Barry. Because I know Barry's around now. He's got a TV show. He's the Flash, whatever. But Barry was dead for 20 years. And so he missed 20 of those years, which, by the way, were our formative years as comic readers, which is why, without a doubt, Wally is the Flash to me. Now, check this out. I don't know if you're keeping up with any current DC comics. I, myself, gave up on current comics a long time ago, but I'm kind of back in the fold. I'm reading oh, about okay. seven or eight current comics right now. Technically, I'm reading them on the app, so I'm six months behind. But I'm reading them currently. Wally is the Flash again. He is the it's star great. of the Flash comic, and it is glorious. It is so uh, good. It is it is wonderful. I love what they're doing right now. So it just feels... It's interesting. Within just a couple of pages, it's like, yeah, this feels like Wally. This feels like Wally is the Flash. He's so distinctive I, I i recognize it in the pages it makes me so happy well, that's great because i knew that barry had come back of course and mm-hmm. when i yeah like you i hadn't really read a lot of new comics especially uh, dc comics because i was frustrated with things like this and looking at the flash covers just made me so sad because barry was uh, front and center and wally's off to the side again and i'm like like you alluded to there's a whole generation maybe two generations of people that have come of age with wally as the flash and you're just saying whatever <laughs> Barry's back. Take you know, this is the way it is, and uh, it's so disappointing because you saw all that character development and all that great uh, work by writers like uh, you know Mike Barron and like Mark Wade, uh, that and you know JMD Matias and Keith Giffen that they did with Wally uh, to kind of bring him to the point that he is now and just kind of toss all that out to bring back a character who, like you said, had been gone for a long time. I know he has his fans, but you know it's been a while, guys. <laughs> Here's something to blow your mind: was that Barry was dead for 20 years, right? Like I said. For us, so Wally was that. Barry's been back for 15. What? He's been back for 15 already? Well, it was 2005, wasn't it? I think. Right in that. Maybe it was a year or two after that. I don't know. I I don't have my calendar in front of me, but it was right. Over a decade, though. Yeah. yeah. So it might have been a couple years after that. It might have been 2008, 2009, whatever, but it's been a long. He's been. So there's another generation of kids where Barry is the only Flash. So DC, I I will say, to DC's credit, so uh, Identity Crisis, let's use that as an example. When Identity Crisis came out, it kind of broke a lot of what DC had been doing for a number of years. And DC went all in on it. Like they yes, went, they, they, they went, okay, dark, you like dark? We're going all dark. So then when Heroes in Crisis came along a couple years ago and it broke Wally, I don't know if you know much about it, Google it if you want. It's anyway, it did a lot of permanent damage to the character of Wally West. Instead of going all in on it, DC has done everything they can to backpedal from it. They're actually backtracking from it and saying, okay, here's what, here's why this happened, and here's how Wally re- has rebuilt himself. And look, here's Wally again. He's the lead of the Flash comic. Now, I don't know how long he'll stay the lead of the Flash comic, but it feels like they're really trying to make a lot of efforts to rebuild Wally as the Flash. And I'm sure at some point they'll just have to figure out a way to make both Wally and Barry the Flash. It's the only thing that makes sense at this point to support both mm-hmm. ends of the fans. But sure. it, it makes me very happy to see them trying to rebuild Wally after all these years. That's really great. And you see similar things happen with the Spider-Men, the two different Hawkeyes, the multiple Green Lanterns, mm-hmm. and it's like fans have their favorites and they're kind of jostling for attention. There's only so many comics out there, right? Uh, a similar situation happened. I knew uh, kids, actually, who grew up with the Justice League cartoon, uh, the Bruce Timm uh, mm-hmm. cartoon, and John Stewart was their Green Lantern. It's probably the first place they ever encountered a Green Lantern, and he was their guy. And then the Ryan Reynolds 
Reynolds movie came out. And they're exactly. all like, who's, who's Hal Jordan? Where's John Stewart? You know, he's not even in this. He's not even mentioned. Where, where's John? And uh, a similar situation. And yeah, it's one of those uh, kind of weird things about comics. It's really quirky, but the, the, the dueling versions of characters that kind of, uh, you know, yin and yang for attention, so to speak. Exactly. And I will just say from A Voice from the Future, thank you, Chris Franklin, for your comment you just left about your son and that exact experience with John Stewart. So, um, <laughs> All right. Well, Wally West is an integral part of the Justice League, and it, you're right. It started here in Justice League Europe. So thank you so much for covering that. I appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem. It was fun. Now, folks, we are going to nominate our favorite moment from the issue in something I like to call the One Punch Award. Whether it be fantastic or shocking or dramatic or funny, awe-inspiring, whatever. So both myself and Jason are going to pick one moment, and it will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. Jason, you're the guest, unfortunately, for everyone listening. So uh, <laughs> why don't you go first and tell us what moment you picked from the issue was just the, had the most wow factor for you. Here, I thought I was the unfortunate one spending my uh, Sunday morning doing this, but no. <laughs> you're right. It's everybody else. You're right. <laughs> so my nominee for the One Punch Award is a, I guess you would call it a dramatic moment, a shocking moment. That is the reveal that Crimson Fox is actually the Silver Sorceress in disguise, coupled with her saving the day and uh, reflecting Dream uh, Slayer's spell back at him and blowing him away. I think this is a great moment. You don't see it coming, like we've already noted. A great moment for this character, too, who's kind of a blank slate, hasn't gotten a lot of love in the story. She's been kicked around a lot in this particular story and been kind of helpless. And for her to be able to kind of get back at the bad guys and have this moment uh, is, is a really really great moment in this story i think that is an absolutely fantastic moment mine is the is the page right before that believe it or not mine was page 19 i i kind of leaned in more to the art just when dream slayer is doing those blasts and it has all those concentric circles we talked about everything it's just such an impressive page i went with that but as i say that i think mine pick is great just for the art but yours is i I immediately giving it to you you're absolutely right yours is a much better pick because it's not just great art it's also the payoff it's yeah. It's the payoff of all of this. It's Silver Sorcerer's getting her revenge. It's the shock of seeing Crimson Fox floating in the air and doing a spell. And you're like, what? You know, What's it, going on? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, the determination in the eyes. It's absolutely the winner, hands down. So, yeah, great pick. Great pick, man. Cool. Do we have to pick uh, who wins in this case? Who has No, I, I immediately surrendered to you. So you get it. Just shut up and take your victory. Oh, awesome. Okay, I'll do that. That's the first time it's ever happened in my life. So <laughs> I'm going to enjoy this moment. <laughs> Well, it's over now. So, uh, congratulations. (laughs) Exactly. Congratulations to Silver Sorceress, Crimson Fox, Dream Slayer, all of you. You are the winner of the One Punch Award. Wear it with pride is as tangible as our love for this moment. All right, Jason, I need to ask a favor. Um, Would you mind hanging around here at the Paris Embassy and keeping an eye on Crimson Fox for a little while? I just, I feel pretty bad that the team went on the mission and left her behind and given her temperament i'm afraid she might just like scratch up all the furniture in anger or something would you mind hanging around here for a bit oh boy you're asking a lot of me um that sounds like a dangerous situation i'm not sure i want to be around but you know what i'm going to do my best i have an uplift from uh, winning the one punch award so i'm going to go in there and give it my all you may never hear from me again (laughs) (laughs) perfect well assuming that you make it through this experience we will bring you back at the end of the show and folks well jason's taking care of that for us i'm I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Log. All 
And just a few thoughts before we get started. If you're listening to this on the day of release, it's December 19th, 2021, just a few days before Christmas and a little less than two weeks before New Year's. You know, 2021 has been another roller coaster of a year for all of us. And uh, just want to say that I appreciate all of you that listen to the show and comment and get involved. I feel like we're all part of one big JLI family together. And I'm feeling a little melancholy myself right now because I am recording the very very last audio I will ever record in this house I'm currently living in. We're actually moving this week to a new house, and I've been in this house for about four and a half years now. So this show has been going for five and a half years, so the majority of episodes of the JLI podcast have been recorded right here in this room, in this house, and so it's just, uh, I don't know, I'm a little sad to see it go. I'm excited about the new house, but I'm a little sad to leave here with uh, so many happy memories, but I know I'm taking all of you with me to the new house, whether you like it or not. All right, enough about me. Why don't we get into your feedback, folks? So remember, get out on the social media. Use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcast. You can tag us at JLI Podcast. And as I always say, it is about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. And remember, folks, when you're posting, if you are outside of the United States, let me know, and we will assign you an appropriate embassy. Now, we've got some catching up to do, so we're going to be covering comments from our website, email, social media, all that stuff from our most recent episodes featuring Justice League Quarterly Number 1 with my guest Martin Gray, and then my interview with Dan Jurgens all about the Blue and Gold miniseries. And as always, I have received so much feedback, we will just be cherry-picking uh, bits and pieces to touch on here. All right, first up on Justice League Quarterly Number 1, heard from Damien Drowett Whiter from our England embassy. He also hosts the Should I Love This Comic podcast. Damien says, Martin really is one of the best ambassadors for comic fans as he always comes across is so cheery and positive even when he's critical he does it in a really positive way you know Damien you're not wrong uh, Martin is just one of the most charming wonderful people and if you wanted to just completely tear you apart with insults he would do it with a smile and a bit of charm <laughs> so Damien goes on to say the discussion of which of the first jacketed superheroes was very enjoyable I definitely go for the Legion of Superheroes between issues 50 and the Magic Wars which makes Keith Giffen the originator of the superhero jacket though I could be convinced that the post-Mutant Massacre X-Men got there first, as Mark Silvestri at one point drew virtually every character in a leather jacket, although never together at the same time. Uh, you know, that's fair. And that really was one of the stipulations, was talking about the team-themed jackets. So, yeah. Either way, it's all Keith Giffen's fault. <laughs> Everything in the 90s is Keith Giffen's fault. Anyway, Damien goes on then to say, Every time you mentioned Claire Montgomery, I thought you were talking about the X-Men writer. J.M.D. Mateus did like sneaking puns into character names, for example, Elrond, so it wouldn't be unprecedented. Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting observation, Damien. So he's saying Claire Montgomery, might, meaning Max's ex-wife and the head of the conglomerate, might be... Claremont Gummery, like a joke on Chris Claremont. That is interesting. Could very well be. They heard from Gus Casals from our Argentina embassy. He does shows like Alfred Pennerworth Presents podcast and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. Gus says, I'm going to add my two cents on the when did the quarterly come out discussion. In late September 1990, I traveled to the United States with a long list of stuff I wanted to buy from comics, including the long-planned and much-hyped Justice League Quarterly, which was definitely not available. It was very, very late. So, there we go. Definitive proof from someone who was on the ground and remembers Justice League Quarterly number one was very, very late, even though I tried to defend the earlier release date. Clearly, I'm wrong. Not the first time that it happened. 
Then Gus goes on to say, I wonder, and I still wonder, if an actual spinoff was in the cards for the conglomerate, depending on the response to this issue. I'm afraid that Justice League Quarterly did not live up to the promise after this stellar debut. Yeah, Gus, I think we're going to see that as we get through. I think before the end of the Giffen Dematteis era, I think we're going to cover six quarterly issues, if I remember right. So, yeah, we'll see that progression as we go on. Doing it from Rob McCarthy from the Hell on Wheels webcomic. Rob says, why was Captain Comet never a member of the Justice League? And that's pre-crisis, too, if you remember the Secret Society supervillains. Rob, that's a good question. Yeah, I absolutely remember the Secret Society supervillains series. I I didn't read it when it was coming out, but I read it in trade later. I absolutely love it. It's a good question why Captain Comet never made the team. Hmm. They heard from Jeff R. He says, I always wanted to see the conglomerate get into a conflict with the captains of industry, the other corporate superhero team of that time, especially since the plot thread around them just got dropped as Firestorm's book moved away from Pittsburgh and those characters. But that's one of those stories that doesn't really have a book to go on. Yeah, so Jeff, you're right. I I was thinking about the captains of industry in regard to the the conglomerate because there is a very similar through line there between the two types of teams and stuff. And I personally, as a Firestorm fan, would have loved to see the captains of industry come back. Then we heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy. Uh, They also do the Symbol Pending Power Girl blog. It says, I'm not always one to notice the art in these comics, but this issue has some really gorgeous art. It even makes the Power Girl costume work in her oh-so-brief appearance. Wow, that may have been one of the first times Symbol Pending has been complimentary of Power Girl's new costume. <laughs> uh, then Symbol Pending says, It's weird, but it's one of the few times that the story needed a miniseries to set up. Like you say, poor Vapor and Echo really got the short shrift in the story. Yeah, yeah I would have loved to have seen a miniseries with Conglomerate. I think there's a lot of potential. I think that 80-page special, or however many pages it was, really, really uh, was a great showcase piece, but it needed more. Totally agree, Symbol Pending. Then we heard from somebody named Jason R. Lady. I have no idea who this guy is. Anyway, he writes in to say, Yay, Justice League Quarterly loved this series, especially the first three or four issues. This one was a delight. Uh, Then he says, uh, regarding Echo, he says her later incarnation in a future Justice League Quarterly is indeed very different than the quiet, demure person we meet in number one. I wish they'd do more with her. I don't know if the concept of a rock star who's also a superhero has ever been done, and it could be very fun. Well, Jason, I will point you no further than Dazzler to answer that question. So I I guess technically she's a disco star, not rock, but still, either way. Uh, Also, uh, Lila Chaney from the X-Men. So, there you go. All right, then he says, regarding Ovel Oil, I was uh, wondering about the Ovel oil company thinking, okay, that's got to be based on something. Uh, And he says it's either a play on the name of the real-life company Chevron Gas or Chevron being a shape and an oval also being a shape. It might just be meant to sound like Mobile Oil, which was a big oil company in real life. Wow! Great observation, Jason. Yeah, I'm totally thinking Oval Oil is probably a play on Chevron Oil. That makes perfect sense. And a simple pending chimes in to say they had said something very similar. Then I got to give a shout out to Nathan Archer. During the Justice League Quarterly episode, I talked about the conglomerate logo, like that C logo. It was bugging me. I swore that I recognized it. I'm like, I had seen it somewhere in real life and it was driving me crazy. Nathan figured it out. I was thinking of the state flag of Colorado, of all things. Crazy. Google it. You'll see what I mean. So yeah, the conglomerate logo looks a lot like the state flag of Colorado. Hmm. Uh, Adam Ackerman from the Denmark Embassy says that he thought the C logo reminded him of the OCP logo from RoboCop. Awesome. Uh, You've got five seconds to comply, Adam Ackerman. Then uh, Captain Entropy says, love the look between Gypsy and Jean on the cover. They should have never fridged her parents. Well, yeah, that's fair. Fair to say. And he says, medically, the word praxis is motor planning. Apraxia is the inability to do praxis correctly, which degrades speech and motor skills. So being 
being Jason Praxis means the ability to exhibit speech and motor skills with your mind. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Entropy. We had so much discussion on the name Praxis last time that that is uh, very appropriate to follow up with. Much appreciated. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald. She's got her own YouTube channel. Liz says, you'll notice on the advertisement for Justice League Quarterly that Praxis is seen in the photo with the team. If he doesn't actually make this happen, how's he being photographed? Uh, that's a good point, because Praxis uh, can't be photographed. Yeah, how did he get in that ad? Then Liz hypothesizes, says, did Clark Kent lend Jimmy a camera from his home planet? <laughs> that's a good one. I like that. Uh, and then Liz says, oddly, my favorite member of this team is Reverb, though he acts very differently than he did on the Flash TV show. And hey, that's three people on this team that made it to live action. Booster Gold on Smallville, Gypsy and Reverb on Flash. <laughs> That's a great observation, Liz. Maybe we'll get a CW uh, conglomerate series at some point. <laughs> they heard from Chris Franklin for the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as JLU Cast, Superman Movie Minute, and much more. Chris says, I like the Chris Sprouse art, but I found it odd at the time that his figures were thicker than most comic book artists. His characters didn't have the chiseled bodies like the norm. I now see that it's pretty strong Mike Mignola influence in his early art, and he tended to draw stockier bodies as well. Second, for some reason, I've never been able to shake. I think the standard male face that Sprouse draws looks a lot like the actor John Delancey who played Q on Star Trek. Huh. I think it's mostly the distinctive nose that Shag mentioned. That's probably just me, though. Uh, Chris, there's definitely a distinctive look to the Sprouse stuff. There's definitely a nose. You can see the Magnolia. You're absolutely right on there. I don't see John Delancey, but you know what? Who knows? I'll, I'll watch for that next time I look. Then we're from Mike Dinas from the Pacific Canadian Embassy. Mike says, I really enjoy the issue for Chris Sprouse's art. The same reason I bought the series Hammerlock and, of course, the trademark Giffen DiMatteis banter. Then he says, there's a neat point on the cover that I'm not sure you guys caught, but Blue Beetle is interacting with the barcode box. Also, the number issue box is casting a shadow on Maxi Man's hair. Dude, I never caught that, Mike. That is fantastic. I went back and looked. You're absolutely right. And then Mike says, to me, the conglomerate were just like the early JLI, taken to the nth degree. I've always saw the early JLI as a somewhat corporate sellout because the way Maxwell Lord uh, wanted to promote their image to the business world. Now Booster takes it even further and actually does sell advertising space on their jackets. Yeah, you're right. This does make sort of a logical extension of what they were doing in Maximal Lord early on. I mean, come on, it was the 80s, early 90s. You know, The whole corporate America as the bad guy was in the air, without a doubt. Then we heard from Jose Rivera. He says, I love the quarterly book so much. Remember back when I said I got into the JLI thanks to a 50-cent bin at my local comic shop? Well, yeah, that same bit had a good chunk of the JLI quarterly books in there. When I was looking for anything and everything JLI, the quarterly books were a godsend. And then he says, uh, once he got the whole series, I had it bound in two hardcover volumes at the bindery that did my JLI JLE books. Oh, Jose, that's amazing. Jose's got some gorgeous custom-bound comics. Absolutely beautiful. They are from Paul Hicks from the DC OCD podcast, also Dial F for Flanger and more. He's from our Australian embassy. Paul says, I remember being so excited about this comic coming out, but then felt deflated as it was more of a one-shot rather than the start of their adventures. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Paul. It was a bit disappointing that it didn't get to continue. Then we heard from Paul Kean, uh, one of the latest additions to the Firewater Podcast Network. He's doing the Batman Family Reunion Podcast. Paul says, uh, regarding the quarterly books, you should know that Miss Tree Quarterly was really good, but it was recently been collected, not by DC, but by Titan under their Hard Case Crime series. There's two volumes out there, which I believe cover the entire quarterly series, which occurs later in her adventures. You know, Max Allen Collins gets a well-deserved bad rap for his Batman stories, but his mystery is very entertaining and was considered very edgy at the time. Huh. Well, thank you for the recommendation, Paul. Appreciate that. Then we heard from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, and the Batgirl Huntress podcast. 
Tim says, I think Praxis is on the cover in that section behind Jean, but we don't see him because he doesn't appear in photographs. <laughs> then he says, I love Ted, but he can really hold a grudge. First with Captain Adam and The Secret, and then with Booster. Being the clown of the team, it's easy to discount Ted's feelings because he's very sensitive and uses humor as a defense mechanism. And then Tim sort of goes on talking about this a little further and implies maybe he's not talking about Ted. Maybe he's talking about himself. Hmm. All right, Tim. Uh, I'll be sure to remember that next time I'm horribly mean to you and make jokes about you, which happens frequently, quite honestly. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey from our Irish embassy. Jimmy writes, the Irish branch of the conglomerate calling. Apologies for the delay in reporting. However, given the recent takeover of the JLI Irish embassy, there were always going to be some teething problems as we amalgamate our various portfolios to achieve synergy in our future reporting of conglomerate future activities and what oh they don't turn up much in the later series okay back to being called the irish embassy <laughs> i love those things jimmy i really do jimmy says this was my very first jli issue i bought notwithstanding the uk reprints uh, as i found the issue in a bookstore that sold comics and thought as this looked like a one-off that i could buy while still reading the uk reprints however so many items came up in this issue mainly from the just league europe cast uh, and why booster had left the team it made me start diving back into the back issues for more and the rest was history. That's so cool. That I'm so glad that Justice League Quarterly forced you to go out and buy other JLI comics so you could understand what's going on. That's great, Jimmy. All right, now let's transition into our feedback on the Dan Jurgens interview. Uh, man, wasn't Dan phenomenal? He was great. And, that, and I'm telling you guys, the Blue and Gold series, it's exceptional. If you're not buying it, you're wasting your time listening to me. Go buy the Blue and Gold series, please. You were heard from Jason Keene. says, what a great interview with one of my favorite creators. The questions and the friendly banter back and forth really brightened up my day. Right, well, Jason, hey, that's down to Dan. He is a fantastic guy and super easy to interview and is always willing to go for a joke. So uh, Jason goes on to say, I think the existence of the Blue Beetle buggy and a female version of Skeets are more than enough to get me interested in the new series. Thanks for the great episode. It was a great way to begin my week. Oh, awesome, Jason. Thanks for listening. Then we're from Martin Gray from our Scottish Embassy. Also does the Two Dangerous for Girl blog. Martin says, I've been raving about the blue and the gold since the first issue, so it's great to hear the secrets behind it. And thanks for letting me contribute a question or two. And then he says, uh, and we may be getting sequel series? Count me in. Actually, that sequel would do very nicely. Booster and Beetle traveling through time. And maybe after that, they could join the army and meet a talking pig. <laughs> oh, Martin, uh, that is a joke that I'm not sure how many people get, but it cracked me up. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much for that joke. They heard from Chris Lister, who says, I always wonder what Shag's thoughts were on the IDW Transformers More Than Meets the Eye series. It featured mostly B and C list Transformers on a mission in space with lots of hijinks along the way. It always felt to me like a spiritual successor to the JLI and even featured an homage cover with Rodimus giving the infamous want to make something of it line. You know, Chris, I've seen that cover. Uh, a few people shared it with me when it came out. I've never read the issue, but, uh, you know, Derek Crabb does the Transformers podcast over on the fan hole, so who knows? Maybe he'll drag me over there to read it someday. I do like me some Transformers, so. Uh, then we heard from Paul Hicks again. He goes, fantastic to hear that Dan Jurgens is so grounded, and bravo for his commitment to giving the readers a fun time. And then Paul complains. He says, uh, Shag, you didn't ask him my number one question, though. So Paul is one of the people I asked for questions in advance. And of course, if you know Paul Hicks, he wanted me to ask Dan Jurgens about the movie Tremors. I'm terribly sorry, Paul, that I did not ask Dan Jurgens about the movie Tremors. Get him on your own damn show. <laughs> then we from Michael Kramer. says, I liked Mr. Jurgens' comment about how Booster would get the heroic work done even if it was somewhat imperfectly. It reminded me why I like Reginald Barclay in the Star Trek The Next Generation. He says, here's a guy who's completely competent as far as being an officer and a technician goes, but because he's so socially 
socially awkward, he comes across as a hopeless sad sack compared to the almost swaggeringly perfect established crew members. Michael, that's a great comparison uh, between Booster and Reginald Barclay as far as just their their lack of luck. Uh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Then Boston Moss chimed in to say, that was fun. Well, thank you, Boston. Then Captain Entropy responded with uh, what appears to be a form letter. He says, great show, gents. I can't believe, bracket, name of a fire and water podcast host, and bracket, got to interview, bracket, name of a renowned and charming comic creator or other entertaining personality, and bracket. But it seems like it's happening more and more frequently. These are always such enjoyable episodes. I may have to create a form comment brimming with praise just to save time. Ha ha ha, wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> Thank you, Captain Entropy. I don't know if me reading aloud did it justice, but uh, it was darn funny. I appreciated it. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald again. Uh, Liz says, I always liked Dan Jurgens' work in comics. His Superman run was legendary. Then Liz says, I know it probably won't be the case, but in my head canon, Rip Hunter's mother is Harlequin. There was a planned romance between Booster and Harlequin, uh, at least at one point. You know, Liz, you're not wrong. Uh, when I wrote that question about who was Rip's mother and Booster's future wife, I actually at first listed out a bunch of possible names. Uh, there's a lot. But yeah, Harlequin's in that list, which blew my mind. I guess I didn't realize that Booster and Harlequin had been a potential item at one point. <laughs> Fascinating. They were from Patrick McMullen, who says, Dan Jurgens is a comic book legend, and I'm loving the Blue and Gold series. It's cool how he positioned Booster and Beetle as a kind of Ghostbusters of the DC Universe. Between the Blue and the Gold back in action and Wally's Return of the Flash, I'm really enjoying the fun factor back in my favorite superhero comics. Patrick, you are not alone there, man. I am reading more DC Comics right now, new DC Comics, than I have in many, many, many years. So, yeah, DC's definitely hitting a, a really positive stride right now. So, yeah. Heard from Tim Price again. This is Blue and the Gold has been fantastic. And this was a great companion piece to that while the series is still going. Then Tim says, I did find it notable that Dan considers Beetle the responsible one and Booster more reckless. That's definitely how I felt they were in their own 80s comics. But by contrast, we've seen the opposite in the given DiMatteis JLI series. You know, Tim, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that went through my head during the interview. But I mean, I'm not going to sit there and correct Dan Jurgens, right? So I thought about the fact that, yeah, in the JLI comics, Beetle is the one with the harebrained schemes and Booster's the one who goes along with it most of the time. But yeah, so uh, interesting to see the sort of a flip-flop in this era versus that era. So yeah, and I, honestly, Tim, I, I may have to give you credit. You may have been the first one to point that out to me. Oh my gosh, like six years ago when I started this podcast. Heard from Chris Franklin again. This is great interview, Shag. I'm going to pick up these issues next time I'm at my LCS. You and Dan have sold me. Sounds like a blast. We heard from Steve Givens. He says, It's such a joy to hear legendary creators talk about their characters and stories. I've often wondered what Jurgens thought about how the Justice League International guys handled Booster and how it may or may not have overshadowed what he was doing with the character. I think his response to the question shows a healthy attitude towards how the medium of comics works. Yeah, Steve, absolutely right. I wasn't sure what he was going to say on that either. And uh, it was really refreshing to hear how positive he took everything. Then we heard from Mike Dynas again. He says, hats off to Dan Jurgens for making it such an entertaining listen. I could listen to Dan talk all day about various DC characters. Yeah, Mike, I mean, he's, he's such a pro, and he's such a great uh, interview. Then Mike says, uh, the current Blue and Gold series is great. It's lots of fun and gives off some of those JLI buddy vibes. I've really been enjoying the social media messages that pepper the pages throughout, like you pointed out, Shag. I had no idea who GG was until he showed up, so good catch on your part, Shag. And Kevin McGuire's flashback sequence got me all in the feels. Yeah, guys, if you're not reading the series, again, you've got to pick it up. If nothing else for issue four, it's amazing. They were heard from Jimmy McGlinchey again. He says, In Jurgen's run on JLA after the Blahaha era, I really enjoyed his characterization of Blue Beetle. He was a little more introspective, and as Jurgen's drew him, he gave a very Spider Man feel to him. It's great that he was able to return to both Ted and Booster once more. 
Then we heard once more from this guy named Jason R. Lady. I have no idea who this guy is, and I wish he would stop filling up my message boards. Anyway, he says, uh, like others in this thread, I appreciated his JLA run for taking Beetle and Booster a bit more seriously as action heroes. If there's one thing about the JLI I would change, it would be for Booster and Beetle, uh, while still being clowns, to be more competent and use their weapons and skills more often. Uh, you know, Jason, that is a great suggestion, and I think I would have enjoyed that as well. To see Booster and Beetle be, again, a little more competent in their superhero actions while still being the goofballs with the, you know, the repo companies and all that. And then Jason says, uh, you guys speculated what it would be the equivalent of Trixie to bring back in the Blue and Gold series, someone who had been a Blue Beetle supporting character back in the day. And Jason suggests looks no further than Melody, Ted's love interest and one of the top scientists in court industry. She was a supporting character throughout the Len Wein run, and she's just left behind with Ted's dad to pick up the pieces of the company at the end of the series. Could be a lot to explore there uh, if Jurgens or another writer wanted to bring her back into Beetle's life. That's a great idea, Jason. All right. All right, folks. Well, now it is time to thank everyone who shared the shows on their social media timeline. We're talking Facebook and Twitter here. It is a long list of names. However, remember, folks, these people showed their support and they helped promote the show. So it's very important to me that we recognize these individuals and our community continues to grow. This time we've got nearly 120 names. Oh my gosh. Remember, these folks went out on social media and hit share or retweet. And you know what? They're helping to spread the word. And new people are still finding the show every month. It is because of your efforts. And I really appreciate it. So here's everyone who helped promote the last couple episodes by sharing on Facebook or retweeting on Twitter. Our thanks go out to some guy named Dan Jurgens who uh, shared this out on Facebook and Twitter. So hmm, thanks for that, Mr. Jurgens. All right, then Alfredo Vila, Andre TFG, Andy Luke, AP3 Talks Geeky Stuff, Baramos, Between the Pages Blog, Bill Beer, Billy Delicious, Boosterific.com, Captain Freakout Psychedelic Radio, Carlin from Nerd Lunch, Charlie McElvey. Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lime, Chuck Rodriguez, Coach Phil Jacks, Coffee and Comics, Comic Fan 44, Court Carpenter, Create My Comic, Cylinder Lave, Damian Droudwhiter, Dave Steele in the Birth of the Accidental Hipster, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, Days of High Adventure Podcast, DC Tweets, DCU Movie Page, Dara Doxell of Cosmic Legends of the Universe, Digest Cast, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine, Dragon PTY, Drasko Roganovic, and more, Eli at L Night 20, Fan Film Fridays Podcast, Fearless Readers, Frederico Hernandez, For All Mankind a Super Friends Podcast, Full Metal Moose, Homework the Podcast, Ian Perez, Internet Freak 69, Into the Weird, Jake Muir, Jake Rambo 32, someone who just uses the Japanese character for sister, Jason R. Lady, Jeffrey Brown, Jim and Dan Comics, Joe Corallo, Joe Tonello, John Wilson, Jonathan Dye, Jose Rivera, Juan Carlos Urbaneja, Justin Steiner, Kichi Baker, Kirk Spencer, Con L, Lizanne Oswald, Long Box of Darkness, Luke Dobb, Mark at Merv2069, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matt Anderson, Matt Ev, Matthew Cody, Max Reads Comics, Max Romero, Michael Kramer, Michael Thomas, Mick Jameson, Mike Dynas, Mike Jameson, Monster Kid Old Movie Weirdo, Mountain Comics, Nancy Northcott, Nuno Duarte, Ollie of Super Ollie 74, Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders Podcast, Outlaw Rob 58 Streaming Network, Paul Hicks, Paul Kean, Podcast Overlord, Pragmatic Gollum, Prairie Justice, a Greg Saunters Vigilante Podcast, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Rob Kelly, Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast, Sandstorm at Combat Veteran DW, Sean Ross and the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Slangword Scott, Star Rocket Radio, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Symbol Pending, The Only American 
American Captain Britain fan, The Voice of Paul, Tim Price, Tony Renner, Too Dangerous for a Girl, Treasury Comics, Trent Lewis, Ultron is My Elvis, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Warlord Worlds, Weird Warriors Podcast, Willie Yarborough, Xenozoic Xenophile, Zack Attack, Zeb Oswald, and Zek Cap Boots. Woof. Oh my gosh, I am out of breath, people. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, folks, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is absolutely fantastic. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It is probably the fault of Martin Gray or Dan Jurgens. All right, never mind. Scratch that. Let's face it. It's Martin's fault. So let me know, folks, if I missed you, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. And please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Our website is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. You can leave your comments on the show post. That is where most of the activity goes on. Then over on Facebook, you can find us as JLI Podcast or Justice League International Blahaha Podcast. On Twitter, we're the JLI Podcast, and our email address is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Sir Martin of Gray and Dan Jurgens for appearing in the most recent episodes of the show. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback. Now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Pat and Jason together in the same embassy. Hey, Ryan, I know we're taking a break from Batman Nightcast, but I've been thinking about the Nightfall storyline, where Jean-Paul Valley temporarily took over the role of Batman. I see where you're going with this. If you were ever paralyzed, I would be honored to take care of Cindy and your kids. Uh, no, that's not where I was going. I was thinking about all the many characters who have filled in for Bruce Wayne as Batman over the years. Dick Grayson, Tim Drake. Commissioner Gordon, for some reason. Yeah, that did happen. Anyway, on the subject of temporary replacements... Your son Andrew is going to take over Supermates? No. Focus on Batman. Why is this so hard? While we're away from Nightcast for a while longer, someone could come in and do a Batman-related show for the Fire and Water Network. Well, I know Paul Keen loves the Batman Family comic book. I've seen Sean M. Myers post a few things about Batman Family, too. Do you think they... We'll do it! For those of you who aren't familiar with the series, Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978, and then rescued detective comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as The Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even Ragman and the Demon. So you're all invited to the Batman Family Reunion Podcast, taking over the Batman Nightcast feed. Coming in January to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. This could be the sensational podcast find of 2022. It is a time of chivalry and adventure. It is a world of magic and legends. It is a story of... Are we there yet? For the 20th time, no. These two. What are we going after again? A dragon. Are you sure? I thought it was a giant. That's the beauty. It hasn't been decided yet. Queen of the Knights is a new production from Azir Voices, where you... The listener, choose what happens. Go to azirvoices.com. That's A-E-S-I-R voices.com for all the details. Ooh, a kitty! 
Did that cat just breathe fire? Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear the JLI teleporter has brought both Pat and Jason together for us. Now, first, Pat, my thanks for appearing on the show, buddy. It, we've chatted on a couple other shows, but this has really been our first chance to ever talk one-on-one, and I really appreciate it. Now, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs? All right. Well, Shag, I'm glad you asked. You can find me on several podcasts on the Longbox Crusade Network, where we cover comics such as Amazing Spider-Man, X-Men, Transformers, G.I. Joe from the Devil's Due series and random comics, along with old TV series and movies, Minute Mysteries with the LBC crew and so much more. Yeah, we got a lot going on. It's been a long time for four years ago when we started this out. So I've just been waiting my time. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to build a podcast empire like Shag did. And I'm just going to keep going and going. (laughs) And now that I've been in here and, you know, don't mind. I kind of helped kind of clean up your office a little bit, Shag. Oh, perfect. Um, I appreciate that. Do a little cleaning in there as well, too. And just got rid of some of the stuff you don't need and... But don't don't worry about it. It's it's fine. Do me a favor while you're at it. Will you fumigate the couch? Because that's where Jared sleeps when he comes to town. Mm, yes, I've heard about that, and I've had the same problems here too at the Longbox Crusade headquarters. So. Oh, curses. I know, I know that. I know how that happens. But speaking about the Longbox Crusade, you can find that on iTunes, Google Play, and most podcatchers, or at www.longboxcrusade.com, as well as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all at Longbox Crusade. And I can be found on Twitter at Christatos01. And thanks again, Shag, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Man, I'm so glad that I did not pod fade in order to be here. <laughs> I'm glad you were here, Pat. This was an absolute blast. We got to cover a really fun issue, too, and we finally mm-hmm. got this chance to chat, and I really appreciate it. All right, Jason. Well, thank you so much for being on this episode. I'm so glad we finally got a chance to talk. I've loved all of your comments you've written in and the stories you've shared, uh, and I'm glad that we finally had this chance. So Me too. why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you and your books on the internet? Sure. So first off, my website is uh, www.jasonrlady.com. Jasonlady.com was actually taken already, believe it or not. I don't, yeah, don't, don't even get me started, but jasonrlady.com. And you can uh, find information about me and my books there, links to purchase them. And you can also find my books on Monster Problems and Super Problems in the Magic Pen series. You can find these on Amazon.com. You can find them on BarnesandNoble.com. Really any bookstores online uh, presence is going to have them. On my website, going back to my website, you can actually submit a picture to me. Uh, if you have kids of that age that are uh, you know fourth through seventh grade, kind of thereabouts, they like to draw. I like to promote uh, creativity and imagination uh, for kids. It's like one of the the big things I like to do with my stories. I really hope kids read them and like me when I was a kid, you know, read really great stuff and get my imagination just blown away. Um, I want them to have that same experience. And so as part of that, I want them to imagine if they had the magic pen and everything they draw was going to become real, what would they draw? So you could submit a picture there uh, on my website. There's a link where you can uh, upload it. And I feature those on my social media periodically. And you can actually go on my Twitter, which is uh, Jason R. Lady. You can go on my Instagram, which is uh, the same thing and uh, Facebook as well. And I post them there. You can always go back and see uh, the archive, so to speak, of uh, what else, uh, what other pictures uh, kids have drawn. There's been some really great stuff uh, submitted uh, over the past couple of years while I've been doing this. That, that's how I learned the premise of your books, actually, was from seeing those pictures posted on social media and then understanding why you were posting them. Oh, great. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, the, like I said, the name of the game is to, uh, you know, get kids to imagine. Um, I had great stuff like, you know, JLI and all the other comics I read, among 
other things when I was a kid. And I really want other kids to have that same experience. I'm happy to contribute. And I love seeing those when they come in. I think they're great. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much again for being here, Jason. This has been an absolute blast, man. You're welcome. This has been an absolute pleasure. It's been great to talk to you. Um, you know, I have kind of this pent up JLI, you know, stuff inside me. And <laughs> the fact that uh, I have an outlet for it with your podcast, listening to it and commenting and uh, then doing this is uh, it's been great. It's been a treasure. I really appreciate it. I, I think that's probably a, a good way to describe why I needed to make this show too, is just to have a community of people to talk with about it. And uh, it's really helped fill that, that JLI shaped hole in my heart. So it's been perfect. Absolutely. It's a good outlet for the, you know, and as you're noticing, there's lots of other people out there that feel the same way. Uh, so no, I really appreciate you and your colleagues uh, offering this uh, platform. It's been, uh, it's been really enjoyable. Well, it's all down to the listeners. It's nothing to do with me. It's, it's down to the great comics and the listeners. So yeah, you're right. It really has nothing to do with you, actually. Very true. And folks, with that, <laughs> we are going to wrap up here before Jason is any more mean to me. So come back next episode when we cover Justice League America number 44 and Justice League Europe number 20. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Pat. And I'm Jason. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make make something something of it? You've been listening to the JLI podcast. Want to make something of it? Do I get to say that? Yeah, that's what you got to oh, okay. say. Right. That's how that works. Oh, it's not in blue. <laughs> well, just say, the, just say the damn line. <laughs> Fine.